0: The following is a conversation with Batul Kachar, an astrobiologist at University of Wisconsin, studying the essential biological attributes of life. This is the Lex Friedman podcast. To support it, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, dear friends, here's Batul Kachar. What is the phylogenetic tree or the evolutionary tree of life? And what can we learn by running it back and studying ancient gene sequences as you have?
1: I think, Phylogenetic trees could be one of the most uh, romantic and uh, beautiful notions that can come out of biology. It shows us a way to depict the connectedness of life and all living beings with one another. It itself is an ever-evolving notion. Biologists like visualizations. They like these graphics, these diagrams, and tree of life is one of them.
0: So the tree starts at a common ancestor.
1: It's actually the other way around. It starts in,
0: from at the end. <laughs>
1: it starts from the, uh, from the branches. It starts from the tip of the branch, actually. and then uh, the further, depending on how what you collected uh, to build the tree, so depending on the branches, depending on what's on the tip of the branch, and I will explain what I mean, the root will be determined by what is really sitting on the tip of the branch of the tree.
0: So we could study the leaves of the tree by looking at what we have today and then start to uh, reverse engineer, start to move back in time to try to understand what the rest of the tree, what the roots of the tree look like.
1: Exactly, so the tree itself, by just taking a few steps back and looking at the entire tree itself can give you an idea about the connectedness, the relatedness of the organisms, or whatever, again, you use to create your tree. There are different ways. But in this case, I'm imagining entire diversity of life today is sitting on the tips of the branches of this tree. And we um, look at biologists, look at the, the tree itself. We like to think of it as the topology of the tree to understand when certain organisms or their ancestry may have merged over time. And depending on uh, the tools you use, you might use this tree to then reconstruct the ancestors as well,
0: and so what are the different ways to do the reconstruction? So you can do that at the gene level, uh, or you could do it at the higher complex biology level, right? So what what in which way have you approached this this fascinating problem?
1: We approached it in every way we can. So it's the gene could be protein, the product of the gene, or species, uh, or could be even groups of species. It will depend, it totally depends on what you want to do with your tree. If you want to understand certain past events, whether an organism exchanged a certain DNA with another one along the course of evolution, you can build your tree accordingly. If you um, rather use the tree to reconstruct or resurrect ancient DNA, which is what we do, um, then in our case, for instance, we do both gene, protein, and species because we want to compare the tree. That we create using these different information.
0: Okay, well, let me ask you the ridiculous question then. So, how realistic is Jurassic Park? <laughs> can we study the genes of ancient organisms, and can we bring the those ancient organisms back? So, the reason I asked that kind of ridiculous sounding question is, uh, maybe gives us context of what we can and can't do yeah. by looking back in time.
1: Yeah. So, uh, dinosaurs or all these mammals, in in, in at least for us, is the exciting thing already happened by the time we hit to uh, larger organisms or to eukaryotes.
0: Oh, to you, the fun stuff is before we got to the mammals. The
1: fun stuff is what people think is boring, I think. The, the, the phase that, uh, well, at least two different times in the geologic history. One is the first life, uh, past origin of life, how did first life look like? Mm-hmm. And the second is why do we think that over certain periods of geologic time, no significant innovation happened to the degree of leaving no record behind.
0: So what do we not have a record of? Which part, which part? so you say, you, the fun stuff to you is after the origin of life, which we'll talk about. After the origin of life, there's single cell organisms. The, the whole thing with the photosynthesis, the whole thing with the eukaryotes and uh, multi-cell organisms. And uh, what, what else is the fun stuff? The whole oxygen thing, which mixes in with the origin of life. Uh, There's a bunch of different inventions, all that have to do with this primitive kind of looking organisms that we don't have a good record of.
1: So, I will tell you the more interesting things for us. One is the origin of life or what happened uh, right following the emergence of life. How did the first cells look like? And then, pretty much anything that we think shaped. The environment and were sh- was shaped by the environment in a way that impacted the entire planet, mm-hmm. that enabled you and I to have this conversation. We have very little understanding of the biological innovations that took place in the past of this planet. Mm-hmm. We work with a very limited set of, um, I don't want to even say data because they are fossil records. So let's say imprints, either that comes from the rock and the rock record itself um or what i just described these trees that we create and whatever we can infer about the past so we have two distinct ways that comes from geology and biology and they each have their limitations
0: okay so <laughs> right so there's an interplay the geology gives you that little bit of data and then the biology gives you that little bit of kind of constraints and the materials you get to work with to infer how does this result in the kind of data that we're seeing? And now we can have this through the fog, we can see, we can look back hundreds of millions of years, a couple of billion years and try to infer.
1: Even further, and and I like that you said fog. It is pretty foggy, weird, and it gets foggier and foggier the, the, the more you, the further you try to see into the past. Um, biology is, you you basically study with, study the survivors <laughs> Broadly speaking. Yeah. And you're trying to pitch the sort of put together their history based on whatever you can recover today. What makes biology fascinating also let it its it erased its own history in a way, right? So you work with this four billion year product, that's genome, that's the DNA. It's great. It's a very dynamic, ever-evolving chemical thing. Mm-hmm. And so you will get some information, but you're not gonna get much, unless you know where to look, um, because it is responding to the environment.
0: Yeah, so what we have, that's fascinating. What we have is the survivors, the successful successful organisms, even the primitive ones, even the, the bacteria we have today.
1: So bacteria is not primitive, and uh, we...
0: <laughs> sorry, sorry to offend the bacteria.
1: <laughs> it's We should be very grateful to bacteria. First of all, they are our um, great, great ancestors. Mm-hmm. I like this quote by Douglas Adams, humans don't like their ancestors, they rarely invite them over for dinner, yeah. right? But bacteria is in your dinner, bacteria yeah. is in your gut, bacteria so they, is helping you along the way. So we do invite the them for dinner. <laughs> we invite them, well, they get themselves invited in yes. a way. Yes, and yes, yes. So we and they're definitely older, um, uh, and and definitely very sophisticated, very resilient than anything um, else. As someone working at the as a as a bacteriologist, I feel like I need to defend them in this case because they don't get much shout out mm-hmm. when we think about life.
0: So you do study bacteria. So which organisms gives you hints that are alive today? That give you, um hints about what ancient organisms were like. Is it bacteria, is it viruses? What do you study in the lab?
1: We study a variety of different bacteria, depending on the questions that we ask. We engineer bacteria. Uh, So ideally we wanna work with bacteria that we can engineer. Um, Seldom we developed the tools to engineer them. And um, it depends on the question that we are interested in. If we are interested in connecting the biology and geology Uh, to understand the early life and and fundamental innovations across billions of years, there are really good candidates like cyanobacteria. So we we use cyanobacteria uh, very frequently in the lab. Uh, We can engineer its genome. We can perturb its function by poking its own DNA with the foreign DNA that we engineer in the lab. We work with E. coli. Um, It's the most simple in, in terms of model systems go. Uh, organism that one can study well established, uh, sort of a pet lab pet uh, that we use it a lot for cloning and for understanding uh, basic functions of the cell, given that it's really well studied.
0: So, and uh, what you do with that E. coli, you said that you inject it with foreign DNA?
1: We inject pretty much all the bacteria that we work with, with foreign DNA. We also work with diazotrophs, these are azotobacteria. Uh, they're one of the prime nitrogen fixers, uh, nitrogen-fixing bacteria.
0: Can you explain uh, what that is, nitrogen-fixing? Is that is the source of its energy?
1: So nitrogen is a triple-bond gas that's pretty abundant in the atmosphere. But nitrogen itself cannot be directly utilized by cells, given it is triple-bond. Um, it needs to be converted to ammonia that is then used uh, for the downstream Cellular functions,
0: and that's what counts as nitrogen fixing. Yes, so Converse nitrogen needs to, to be fixed
1: before our cells can make use of it, and and it's no uh, offense to
0: nitrogen either. Well,
1: uh it's actually a very important element. It's one of the most abundant elements on on, on our planet that is used by biology. It's in ATP, it's in chlorophyll. um that's uh, uses that relies on nitrogen, so it's a very important enzyme for a lot of cell functions
0: and there's just one mechanism that evolution invented to convert it, it to is, fix it
1: so far we know there's there's only one nitrogen fixation pathway as opposed to say carbon you can find up to seven or eight different carbon based uh, microbes invented to fix carbon that's not the case for nitrogen it's a it's a singularity across geologic time we think it evolved around 2.7 maybe um, roughly 3 probably less than three billion, year old, billion years ago. And that's the only way that nature invented to fix the nitrogen in the atmosphere for the subsequent use.
0: Would we still have life as we know it today if we didn't invent that nitrogen fixing step?
1: I cannot think of it, no. It's it's uh, it's essential to life as we know. You, you and I are having this conversation because life found a way to fix nitrogen.
0: Is that one of the tougher ones? If you put it sort of... Uh, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon, what are, in terms of being able to work with these uh, elements, what is the hardest thing? What is the most essential for life? Just to Mm -hmm. give context. Well,
1: we we think of this as the cocktail, you may hear. What's in the cocktail? It's the schnapps, right? Carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, sulfur. So there are five elements that life relies on. We don't quite know uh, whether that's the only out of many options that uh, life necessarily needs to operate on, but that's just how it how it happened on our own planet. Mm-hmm. And um, there are many abiotic ways to fix nitrogen, uh, and like lightning, right? Lightning can accumulate uh, ammonia. Uh, humans found a way about a hundred years ago, uh, I think, around World War One, um, the Haber Bosch process. That we can abiotically convert nitrogen into ammonia. Actually, fifty percent of the nitrogen in our bodies comes from the human um, conversion of nitrogen to ammonia. It's helped. uh, It's the fertilizer that we use. Urea comes from that process. Uh, It's it's in our food. So we helped. We found a way to uh, fix our own nitrogen for ourselves.
0: Yeah, but that you know that's way after the original invention of hydrogen. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And without that, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have all the steps of evolution along the way.
1: Oh, absolutely. We tried to replicate in the most simplest way what nature has come up with, right? We do this by taking nitrogen, using a lot of pressure and then generating ammonia. Life does this in a more sophisticated way, relying on one single enzyme called nitrogenase. It's the nitrogen that is used together with eight electron donor and ATP, together with a uh, lot of hydrogen. Life pushes this metabolism down to create fixed nitrogen. It's quite remarkable.
0: So the lab pet E. coli you inject them with DNA. Those are the so E. coli does nitrogen fixing in part, or is that what's that a different one?
1: So some biological engineers engineered E. coli to fix nitrogen. I believe not not us we use the nature's nitrogen nitrogen fixing bug and engineer it with the uh, nitrogen fixing metabolism that we resurrected using our computational and phylogenetic tools.
0: How complicated are these little organisms? What what, what are we talking about?
1: Depends on how we define complication.
0: <laughs> okay, <laughs> so I, I could tell that you uh, appreciate and respect the full complexity of even the most seemingly uh, primitive organisms because none of them are primitive. Okay. That said, what, what kind of, what, what are we talking about? How how um, What kind of machineries do they have that you're working with when you're injecting them with DNA?
1: So I will start with one of the most fascinating machineries that we target, which is the translation machinery. Mm-hmm. It is um, a, a very unique uh, subsystem of cellular life, uh, in comparison to, I would say, metabolism, and uh, we used to, um, you know, when we are thinking about cellular life, we think of the cell as the basic unit uh, or the building block. Uh, but from a key perspective, that's uh, not the case. That one may argue that everything that happens inside the cell serves the translation uh, and the translation machinery. Um there is a nice paper that called this that the entire cell is hopelessly addicted to this main informatic computing biological chemical system that it is operating at the heart of the cell.
0: Which is the translation. It is the translation. What's translating from what to what? So RNA to enzymes?
1: It converts a linear sequence of mRNA into a folded uh, later folded protein. Uh, that's that's when the uh, that's the core processing center for information for life. It uh, has multiple steps. It initiates. It elongates. It um, terminates and it recycles. It operates uh, discrete bits of, of information. It itself is like a chemical decoding device. And Mm -hmm. that is incredibly unique for translation that I don't think you will find anywhere else in the cell that does this.
0: So even though it's called translation, it's really like a factory that reads the schematic and builds a three-dimensional object. It's like a printer.
1: I would divide it into actually even four more additional steps or disciplines than what would it take to study it by the way you described it? It's a chemical system. It's the compounds that make it up are chemicals. It's physical. It tracks the energy to make its job, to do its job. It's informatic. What is processed are the bits. It's computational. Uh, The discrete states that the system is placed uh, when the information is being processed, that's itself is computational and it's biological. It's a, there's variability and inheritance that come from imperfect replication even and imperfect computation.
0: So you're- man, that's so good. So from the biology comes the, um, like when you mess up the bugs of the features, that's the biology. Informatics is obvious in the RNA, that's a set of information there. Uh, The different steps along the way, is actually kind of what the computer does with, with bits. It's done computation. Physical, there's a, a I guess, the, 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 like a, almost like a mechanical process to the whole thing that requires energy and it actually, you know, it's manipulating actual physical objects. And uh, chemical is because you are have to, ultimately, it's all chemistry.
1: Yeah. And it tracks this information. So it is almost a mini computer device inside ourselves. Yeah. And that's the oldest. Uh, computational device of life, it's it's uh, likely the key uh, operation system that had to evolve for life to emerge.
0: It's uh, more interesting or <laughs> it's more complicated in interesting ways than the computers we have today. I mean, everything you said, which is really, really nice. I mean, I guess our computers have the informatic and they have the computational. But they don't have the chemical, the physical, or the biology.
1: Exactly, and and the computers don't have don't link information to function, right? They, right. they are not tightly coupled. Nowhere close to what translation, uh, and, and or the way translation does it. So that's the number one, I think, difference between the two. And um, yes, it's it's informatic, and we can um, uh, discuss this further too.
0: One hundred percent. Let's please discuss this further. <laughs> Which part are we discussing For Each one of those are fascinating worlds, each each of the five.
1: Yeah, so, well, we can start with the more, I guess, the, the ones that are more established, which is the, the chemical aspect of the translation machinery. It's uh, the, the specific uh, compounds make up the assembly of RNA. Chemists showed this in many different ways. We can rip apart the entire machinery. We know that at the core of it, there's an RNA that's... Um, that operates not only as an information information system itself or information itself, but also as an enzyme. And, and origin of life chemists make these molecules easily. Now we know we can manipulate RNA, we can make even with single-pot chemistries, we, we can create compounds. What's a
0: single-pot chemistry?
1: Um, that's uh, I would say when you add all the recipes that you know that will lead you to the
0: final product this is what or- all original in one life chemists do is they they come up with this pot they throw a bunch of chemicals in and they try to try to <laughs> they're basically chefs of, of a certain kind
1: I'm not sure if that's what they call it but that's how I think of it because it is all combined in a test tube and you know the outcome and uh, and it's it's merely mathematical once you know the right environment and the right chemistry that needs to get into this container or this pot, uh, you know what the outcome is. There's is no luck there anymore. It's a pretty rigid established uh, input-output system and it's all chemistry.
0: So you actually wear a lot of hats. As one of them uh, original life chemist?
1: My PhD is in chemistry, but I don't do uh, original life chemistry.
0: But you're interested in origin of life,
1: yes, absolutely. So some I, of your
0: some of your best friends are origin of life chemists. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Just make sure that you have good chemist friends if you're interested in origin of life. yeah, that's a hundred percent requirement. It should be
0: mandatory <laughs> okay. so chemistry, uh, so, so what else about this machinery that we need to know chemically?
1: Well, uh, Chemically, I think that's it. You have enzymes, you have proteins. Enzymes are doing their thing. They know how to chew energy using ATP or GTP. They, they, they know what to do on their in their own way. They do their enzymatic thing. Uh, so it's not just the, the ribosome that is at the heart of the transition, but there are a lot of different proteins. You're looking about about 100 different components that compose this machinery.
0: Uh, well, let me ask kind of, maybe it's a ridiculous question, but did the chemistry make this machine or did the machine use chemistry to achieve a purpose? So like, um, I guess there's a lot of different chemical possibilities on earth. Is is this translation machinery just like uh, choosing, picking and choosing different chemical reactions that it can use to achieve a purpose? Uh, or did the chemistry basically, like a, there's like a momentum, like a constraint to the thing that can only build a certain kind of machinery. That's basically is, is is chemistry fundamental or is, is it just emergent? Like how important is chemistry to this whole process?
1: You cannot have uh, life without chemistry. You cannot have any cellular process without chemistry. What makes life interesting is that even if the chemistry is imperfect, even if there are accidents along the way, if something binds to uh, another chemical in in a way it shouldn't, um, there is resilience within the system that it can maybe not necessarily repair itself, but it moves on however imperfect uh, mistakes can be handled.
0: That's where the biology comes in.
1: That's where the biology comes in. But in terms of chemistry, you absolutely cannot have a translation machinery without chemistry. And so you're, as I said, there are four main steps. These are the core steps that are conserved in all translation machinery. And I should say all life has this machine, Mm -hmm. right? Every cell,
0: everything. On earth. On earth. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. When you think of this machine, do you think very specifically about the kind of machinery that we're talking about, or do you think more philosophically, a machine that converts information into function?
1: It's I I cannot separate the two. I think what makes this machinery fascinating is that those five components that I listed are they they coexist. So for instance, if we uh let's just talking about the chemistry part, um we we know the certain um, rate constant. All these proteins that operate in this machinery needs to harbor in order to uh, get the mechanism going, right? If you are bringing the, the information to the translation machinery and you are the initiator of this uh, computation system, you need to have, uh, you can only afford a certain range of mistakes. If you're too fast then the next uh, message cannot be delivered fast. If you're too slow, you may stall the process. So there is definitely a chemistry constant going on within the machinery. Um, Again, it's it's not perfect, far from it. Uh, But uh, they all... uh, have their own margin of error that they can tolerate versus they cannot, otherwise they collapse, the system collapses.
0: So it's like a jazz ensemble, the notes of the chemistry, but you can be I a love little I like that off-beat. you said
1: jazz, it's definitely true. It's a party and it's like everybody's invited and and, and they need to operate together, right? And, and they, uh, what's really cool about it, I think, there are many things that are very interesting about this thing, but if you take, if you remove it from the cell and put it in a cell-free environment, works just fine, right? So you can get cell-free translation systems, uh, put this translation in a, a test tube and it is doing its thing. It, it doesn't need the rest of the cell to translate information. Of course, you need to feed the information, at least so far, um, but, but because we are far from evolving a translation, maybe not so far, uh, evolving a translation in the lab uh, or the a machinery that can process information as it generates it, we have not done that yet
0: it's a pretty complicated machinery, so it's hard for to, for those uh original life chemists to find a pot that generates
1: because it's far more than chemistry you need you need uh biology obviously you need. Biochemistry. You need to think as a, I think, a network systems folk. You need to think about computation. You need to think about information, and and that is not uh, happening yet. Except we are trying to bring this perspective. Uh, but the more you understand uh, how information systems work, you cannot. Once you see it, you cannot unsee it. It's one of those things.
0: So, but you can still rip it out, and the chemistry happens.
1: Yes. And chemistry can happen even with uh, even if you strip some of the parts out, it can you can get very minimal uh, level of information processing that does not look anything like the translation that cells relies on, but that but chemists showed from linear, uh, you can generate information that arrives to a processing center in the form of a linear polymer, but the informatic part of this system that I think sets it apart from computation and from metabolism comes in, if you think about the information itself, right? So we have four nucleotide letters that compose DNA, and um, they are processed in the translation in triplets. So you have in in triplet uh, codon fragments. So you have four times four times four. So you have 64 possible states that can be Encoded by four letters in three positions. Mm -hmm. All right. So
0: it's so amazing. Yeah. It's so amazing. There is
1: only one code that says start. That's the, that there's only one. And then there's two, if not three, that says stop. So that's, that's, that's what you work with. But you can have 64 possible states, but life only uses 20 amino acids. So we used, life uses 64 possible states minus four of the starts and stops to code for 20 amino acids in different combinations. That is really amazing. If you think about, there there are 500 different amino acids life can choose, right? It's narrowed it down to 20. We don't know why a lot of people think about this genetic code is
0: quite fascinating. So far, right? Right.
1: I mean, it didn't do it for four billion years. I don't know. We may wait for another four billion years, but
0: but you didn't have those amino acids in the very beginning, right? Like uh... we don't
1: know. So it, we we would be fooling ourselves if we said we know exactly how how many amino acids existed so... early on. But there's no reason to think that it it uh, wasn't the same or set. similar. Yeah, it, we don't we don't have a good reason, but but because roughly twenty out of sixty states are used, you're using one third of your possible states in the in your information system. So it, it, this may seem like a waste, but informatically it's important because it's abundant and it is um, redundant, right? Mm, yeah. So so it, the, this code degeneracy, you see this in that's implemented by this translation machinery inside the cell. So it, it means you can make errors, right? You yeah. can make errors, but the message will still get through. You you can speak, missing some letters, to the information can miss some parts, but the message will still get through. So that's two-thirds of the not-used states give, gives you that robustness and resilience within the system. So
0: at the, at the informatic level, there's room for error. There's probably room for error probably in all five uh Categories that we're talking about. There's probably room for error in the computation. There's probably room for error. Yes, yeah, the there's
1: yes, exactly. Everywhere there's room yeah, for error because because the this informatic capacity is made possible together with the other um, components. And not only that, but also the the product yields a function. No, uh, in this case, enzyme or protein, mm-hmm. right? So so that's really amazing to me <laughs>
0: <laughs> it is i mean i mean in my head just so you know because i'm a, a, a computer science ai person the the parallels between even like language models that encode language or now they're able to encode basically any kind of thing including um images and actions all of in this kind of way the the, the parallel in, in in terms of informatic and uh, computation it's just incredible. Yeah,
1: actually, um, I have a image. Maybe I can send you.
0: Can we pull it up now?
1: If you just do genetic codon charts, we can pull that up. Yeah, it's a very standard table. so i can I can uh, explain what why this is so amazing. So you're looking at um, like this is life's alphabet, right? And so I, I also want to make a very quick link now to your first question, the mm-hmm. Tree of Life um when when we link when we try to understand ancient languages right or the cultures of the, the or the cultures uh, that use these extinct languages uh, we start with the modern languages right so we look at um indo-european languages and and try to understand certain words and make trees um to understand you know this this is what uh, slavic uh, word is for snow something like snig
0: now we jump to languages that humans spoke Humans human, now, human spoke. history exactly
1: so we make trees to understand what is the original ancestor what did they use to say snow and if you have a lot of cultures who use the word snow you can imagine that uh, it was snowy that's why they needed that word it's the same thing for <laughs> biology right yeah. if if they have some if we understand some function about that enzyme we can Understand the environment that they lived in. It's it's the similar, it's similar in that sense. So now you're looking at the alphabet for of life. In this case, it's not 20 or 25 letters. It's you have four letters. So what is really interesting that stands out to me when I look at this it, it, on the outer shell, you're looking at the 20 amino acids that compose life, right? Mm. The one, the methionine that you see, that's the start. So the start is always the same. Got. To me, that is fascinating. That all life starts with the same starts. There is no other start code. So you send the uh, AG, you know AUG, to the cell. That when that information arrives, the translation knows, all right, I gotta start. Function is coming. Mm-hmm. The following this is a chain of information until the stop code arrives, which are highlighted in black squares.
0: So for people just listening, we're looking at a standard RNA colored table organized in a wheel there's an outer shell and there's an inner shell all using the four letters that we're talking about and with that we can compose all of the amino acids and there's a start and there's a stop and presumably you put together the the with these letters you walk around the wheel to put together with the words the sentences that yeah the make...
1: words the sentences and um, you uh, Again, you get one start, you get three, st- there are three different ways to stop this, one way to start it. And for each letter, you have multiple options. So you say you have a code A, the second code can be another A, and even if you mess that up, you still can rescue yourself. So you can get, a, for instance, I'm looking at the lysine the K, you get an A and you get an A and then you get an A that gives you the lysine. Mm-hmm right? But if, if, you a, if you get an A, and if you get an A and get a G, you still get the license. So th- there are <laughs> yeah. uh, different combinations. So even if there's an error, we don't know if these are selected because they were er- er- erroneous and somehow they got locked down. We don't know if there's a mechanism behind this to or we we certainly don't know this definitively. But this is the informatic uh, part of this. And notice that the, the colors, and in some tables too, the colors will be coded in a way that um, the, the type of the nucleotide can be similar chemically. Uh, but the, the point is that you will still end up with the same amino acids or something similar to it, even if you mess up the code.
0: Do we understand the mechanism how natural selection interplays with this resilience to error? So, like which errors result in the same uh, output, like the same function and which don't? Uh, which actually results in a dysfunction, in which are...
1: We understand to some degree the how translation and the rest of the cell work together, yeah. how an error at the translation level, this is a really core level, can impact entire cell. But we understand very little about the evolutionary mechanisms behind the selection of the system it's thought to be as one of the hardest problems in biology, and it is still the dark side of biology, even though it is so essential. So this is, uh, yeah, you're looking at the language of life, so to speak, and and how it can found ways rather to uh, tolerate its own mistakes.
0: So the entire phylogenetic tree can be like uh, deconstructed with this wheel of l- language.
1: Because all the final letters, those are that's the 20 amino acids, that's our alphabet. Yeah. They are all brought together with these bits of information, right? So you when you look at the genes, you're looking at those four letters. When you look at the proteins, you're looking at the 20 amino acids, uh, which may be a little easier way to track the information when we create uh, the tree.
0: So using this language, we can describe all life that's lived on Earth.
1: Uh, I one, wish. one perspective. It's not, it's, we are not that uh, good at it yet, right? So, so in
0: theory, this is one way to look at life on Earth.
1: If you're a biologist and you want to understand how life evolved uh, from a molecular perspective, this would be the way to do it. And and this is what nature um, narrowed its code down to. So when we think of nitrogen, when we think of carbon, when we think of sulfur, it, it's all in this, that the, all these nucleotides are built based on those elements.
0: And this is fundamentally the informatic perspective. Exactly,
1: okay. that's, that's the informatic perspective. And it's important to emphasize that this is not engineered by humans. Mm-hmm. This is This evolved by itself
0: like <laughs> right <laughs> humans didn't invent this just because we we're just uh, describing we're trying to find trying to describe the language of yeah. life
1: it's it appears to be a highly optimized chemical and information code um it it may indicate that a great deal uh, of uh, chemical evolution and uh, and and this may Indicate that a lot of selection pressure and Darwinian evolution happened with prior to the rise of last universal common ancestor, because this is uh, almost a bridge that connects the earliest cells to the last universal common ancestor.
0: Okay, can you describe what the heck you just said? <laughs> uh, so this mechanism evolved before the what common ancestor? So the, there's the, the last universal common ancestor. Yes. So ancestor. when we talk
1: about the tree, when we think about the root, if you uh, ideally uh, included all the living information or all the available information that comes from living organisms on your tree. Then it on the root of your tree lies the last universal common ancestor, Luca, right? Why
0: last? Last Uh, universal. Because the earlier universal, it also had trees, but they all died off.
1: We call it the last because it is sort of the first one that we can track uh, because we cannot, we don't know what we cannot track, right? There's so
0: one, there was one organism that started the whole thing.
1: It's more like a. I would think of it as more like a population, a group of organisms than okay, a single. Hold on a second.
0: I tweeted this, so I want to know the accuracy of my tweet. All right. <laughs> um, sometimes early in the morning, I I tweet very pothead like things. I said uh, that we all evolved from one. Common ancestor that was a single cell organism, 3.5 billion years ago, uh, something like this. How how true is that tweet? Do I need to delete it? No, there's actually correct. I mean uh i I think of course, there's a lot to say, which is like we we don't know exactly uh but what to what degree is that the the single organism aspect is that true um versus multiple organisms
1: um, do you want me to be
0: brutally honest okay. yes, please this <laughs> um, so... <There's> still time <laughs> this this is how we get de- like caveats and tweets we'll all
1: right just... so first of all, it's not um. is still a very conservative estimate. In which direction? uh, I would say it's 3.8 is probably safer to say at this point.
0: A bunch of people said it probably way before.
1: If you put an approximately, I'll take that.
0: I didn't. I just love the idea that I was once, first of all, as a single organism, I was once a cell.
1: Well, you're still as, you're a group of cells.
0: No, but I started from a single cell. Me, Lex.
1: You mean like you versus Luca? Are you relating to Luca right now? No, no, or no, no. relating to
0: my, like, your Lex, own development. My own development, I started from a single cell. It's like, it yes. like built up and stuff, okay. That, for, and then, so that's a, for single biological organism. And then from an evolutionary perspective, the Luca, like, I start, like, my ancestor is a single cell, and then here I am sitting, half asleep, tweeting, like I started from a single cell, evolved a ton of murder along the way to le- the, the, the this like brutal uh, search for adaptation through the three point five point eight billion years. so you
1: you defy the code of Douglas Adams. You are proud of your ancestors, and you invite yes, them over 100%. to dinner and you invite them over to your Twitter,
0: yeah. so and it's amazing that this intelligence. To the degree you can call it intelligence, emerge to be able to tweet whatever the heck I want. Yes, it's a, it's almost anyway.
1: intelligence at the chemical level, and this is also probably right. one of the first chemically intelligent system that evolved by itself in nature.
0: Yeah, you, so you see that translation is an in, fundamentally like uh, intelligent mechanism
1: in in its own way, and and again, the if if we manage to figure out how to drive. Uh, life's evolution. Um, in in it can if it can evolve uh, a, a sophisticated sort of informatic um, processing system like this, you may ask yourself what might uh, chemical systems be capable of independently doing under different circumstances.
0: Yeah. So like locally. They're intelligent locally. They don't need the rest of the shebang. Like they don't need the big they picture. Need,
1: so that, that's, that's a great segue into what makes this biological, right? The, the heart of the cellular acti- activities are translation. You kill translation, you kill the cell. Yes. You, not only the translation itself, you kill uh, the component that initiates it, you kill the cell. You, kill, you remove the component that elongates it, you kill the cell. So there are many different ways to disrupt this machinery. They, all the par, all the parts are important. Now it, it can vary across different organisms. We see variation between bacteria versus eukaryotes versus archaea, right? So it is not the same same exact steps, but it can get more crowded as we get closer to eukaryotes, for instance. But you are still computing about um, twenty amino acids per second, right? This is this is what you're generating every second.
0: That single machinery is doing twenty a second.
1: Twenty 21 for bacteria, I believe. Eight for eukaryotes or nine.
0: Twenty one a second. I mean, that's super inefficient or super efficient, depending on how you think about it.
1: I think it's great. I mean, I can. Yeah, but it's way slower than acids.
0: a computer could generate through simulation. I
1: I think. If you can't show me a computer that does this, we are done here.
0: Well, this is the big, this includes the five things, <laughs> not just, but I could show you a computer that's doing the informatic, right? I, like,
1: yes, you can show me that, but you but cannot I, show me the one that has all.
0: For but, now. For now. I will ask you about probably what uh, AlphaFold, right? Uh, the, I think
1: the more we learn about, and this, this is why early life, an origin is also very fascinating and applicable to many different disciplines. There is no way you see this the way we just described it, unless you think about early life and early geochemistry and uh, earliest emergent systems. But going going back to the biological component, um, all of these attributes that we think about life or that we associate with biology stamps from translation and as well as metabolism, but I see metabolism as a way to keep translation going, and translation keeps metabolism going. But translation is arguably a bit more sophisticated process for the reasons that um, I just described.
0: So metabolism is a source of energy for this translation process.
1: It's a it's a it's a way to process materials, uh, and it is inherently dynamic, and it is. Um, flexible, but it is not focused on rep- reputation as translation does. So that's the main difference. Translation is the kind of, in a way, just it repeats, right? So you have the metabolism that can synthesize materials, it, it creates uh, or benefits from available energy. And again, it's a dynamic system. Um, and then you have computation that it that is inherently uh, repetitive, right? Needs to carry out repetitive processes. Uh, it, and it does the tasks and it's, it implements an algorithm, but it is not dynamic. So you see both of those attributes in translation combined. It is repetitive, and it is dynamic, uh, and it also processes this information. So they are fundamentally different. I don't know if you can get um, life if you don't find a way to process the information around you.
0: In a repetitive, dynamic way.
1: Yeah, and somehow that that's what uh, got... Um, selected, maybe not selected, I don't know if it was um, accidental, but that, that's what it seems to be conserved for four billion years, that that's what life established.
0: Upon. What's the connection between translation and the self-replication, which seems to be a, a, another weird thing that life just started doing, wanting to just replicate itself? I
1: think when we truly understand the answer to that question, we may have just made ourselves life, right? we I don't think we know quite how translation machinery as a whole fits into the equation. Because so we, we try to understand um, ribosomes, RNA, how the linear information is processed, um, or the genetic code, why this codon's not others, why 20, not more, not less. Uh, and we are sort of moving towards translation. That's, that's what we're working on anyway. Uh, to finally look at the patterns in which this uh, system operates itself. And and if you understand that, you're really unlocking a very emergent behavior.
0: Uh, One of the things you didn't mention is physical. Is there something to mention about that component that's interesting?
1: There's actually a paper uh, published in 2013. I want to say the first author is Zirnoff. So they uh, surveyed a computational um, engineered systems level computation energy consumption. Okay, and they try to understand whether the universe is using its own or life is using its full capacity of energy consumption, and whether um, if different planets in the universe had life, would the capacity would increase or decrease? Is, does life operate at its energy maximum? And uh, And they think that it does, that it actually operates at an efficiency that is far more above and beyond any computational system.
0: How is that possible to determine at all?
1: That you tell me. That's why I dropped the citation. I I found the citation. It's quite an interesting paper. It's a bit, you know, it's a, a, obviously you can only calculate and infer these things. Uh, But- uh, It's a good
0: question to ask. Is the life- that we see here on earth and life elsewhere in the universe, is it using the energy most efficiently? Yeah, yeah. I, it I, seems to be very efficient. I mean, again, if we compare it to computers, it seems to be incredibly efficient at using yeah. energy.
1: I think they, they look at the like the theoretical optimum for electronic devices, Got it. and then try to understand uh, where life falls on, on this, and life is certainly more efficient.
0: And that's ultimately the physical side. How well are you using for this entire mechanism the energy available to you, and um, so given given all the resilience to errors and all that kind of stuff, it seems that it's close to its maximum.
1: Yep.
0: And this this paper aside, it does seem that life obviously that's the constraint we have on Earth, right? Is the amount of energy. Yeah. So that's one way to define life. Well, the input is energy, and the output is what I don't know. Self-replicating. Wait, how? Okay, let's go there. How do you? How do you personally define life? Do you have a? Do you have a favorite definition that you try to sneak up on? Um, is it possible I, to define life on Earth? I
1: don't know. It depends on what you are defining it for. If you're defining it for finding different life forms, then it probably needs to have some quantification in it so that you can. Um, Use it in in whatever the mission that you're operating. So to you mean for like life. it's not
0: binary? It's uh, this is like a seven out of ten uh, uh, on the life. L- life li- like
1: life, I I don't know. I I don't I don't think that defining is that essential. I think it's a good exercise, but I'm not sure if the if we need to agree um, a universally defined way of understanding life. Uh, because the definition itself seems to be ever evolving, anyway. Right? We have the NASA's definition. It's, it's it has its uh, minuses and pluses, but it seems to be doing its job.
0: But well, what what are the different? If there is a line and it's impossible or unproductive to define that line, nevertheless, we know it when we see it. Is one definition that the Supreme Court likes, and that's a kind of an important thing to um to think about when we look about when we look at life on other planets so how do we uh try to identify if a thing is living when we go to Mars when we go to uh the different moons in our solar system or we go outside our solar system to look for life yeah on other planets
1: it's unlikely to be a a sort of a smoking gun event, right? It's not going to be, hey, I found this. You don't think so? I don't think so. Unless you find an elephant on some exoplanet, then I can say, yeah, that's there's life here.
0: No, but isn't there a dynamic nature to the thing? Like uh, it moves, it has a membrane that looks like there's stuff inside. It doesn't versus... need to move,
1: right? I mean, like look at plants. I mean, they, they grow, but there are plants that are can be also pretty dormant and arguably they are most they do everything that uh, one of my favorite professors once said that the plant does everything that a giraffe does without moving so the
0: movement it's is very not a zen statement necessarily <laughs> but on a certain time scale the, the plant does move it just moves slower yes it moves pretty i
1: would i would say that and and i'm longer. it's hard to quantify this or even measure it but it is a um life is definitely Um, chemistry finding solutions right so it is chemistry exploring itself and and maintaining this exploration for billions of years
0: so okay so a planet is a bunch of chemistry and then you run it and say all right figure out what uh what cool stuff you can come up with that's essentially what life is Given a chemistry, what is the cool stuff I can come up with?
1: If that chemistry or the solutions that it embarks upon are maintained in a form of memory, right? So it's it's, you you don't just need to have the uh, explore exploring chemical space, but you need to also maintain a memory of some of those solutions for over long periods of time. So that's the memory component. makes it more living memory, to me. Because ke- chemistry can always sample, right? So chemistry is chemistry. But are you just constantly sampling or are you building on your former solutions and then maintaining a memory of those solutions over billions of years? Or at least that's what happened here.
0: Chemistry can't uh, build life if it's always living in the moment. The physicist will be very upset with you. Okay. So memory could be... A fundamental i mean th- life is not just
1: chem- i mean life is obviously the chemistry and physics uh, leading to biology so this is not a disciplinary problem of one discipline triumphing other discipline it's that but what what you need to have is definitely I mean, chemistry is everywhere right i tend to think you can be a Chemists, you can study chemistry, you can study physics, you can study geology anywhere in the universe, but this is the only place you can study biology. This is the only place to be a biologist. Earth. That's it. Yeah. So so definitely something very fundamental happened here, and you cannot take biology out of the equation. If you want to understand how that vast chemistry space, how that general sequence space got narrowed down to what was what is available or what is used by life, you need to understand the rules of selection, and that's when evolution and biology comes into play. So
0: the, the rules of natural selection operate to you on the level of biology?
1: Rules? I don't know if there are any uh, rules like that. It would be fascinating to find in terms of the biology's rules. That's a very interesting and um it's a very fascinating area of study now, and probably we will hear more about that in the decades to come. But if you wanna go from the the broad to specific, you need to understand the rules of selection. And that is gonna come from understanding biology, yes.
0: Well, actually, let me ask you about selection. You have a paper uh, on evolutionary stalling, where you describe that evolution is not good at multitasking. Or like uh, in uh, populations that have, evolve quickly. I mean, it's a very specific thing, but there could be a generalizable fundamental thing to this, that evolution is not able to improve multiple modules simultaneously. Uh, I guess the question is um, what part of the organism does evolution quote unquote focus on to improve? Mm. Yeah, that
1: was the driving question. We um, meddled with the part where you shouldn't be messing up with translation.
0: This is the. Should or should not.
1: You shouldn't, Uh, as I said. There are many ways to break it, and uh, all life needs it. So
0: one of the things, your favorite things to do is to break life, see what happens.
1: It's uh, yeah, because that's how kids learn, right? So you have to break something and see how it will, uh, and you do it over and over again to see if it will fix itself in the same ways. Yeah. So that's it's our I don't know it's the most fundamental properties of our ourselves as human beings. So if we shouldn't break translation, then we should try to break it yes. to see how it will repair. So
0: which part did you break?
1: I broke elongation. So uh, what, what,
0: well, what's the role of elongation in this process? So,
1: so the, we we have uh, four steps of the, of the translations, initiate, elongate. So elongate the chain of the, the information chain that you're now creating, the mm-hmm. peptide chain, uh, uh, or let's say broadly polymer chain. Um, And there's a termination step and there's the recycling. So all of these uh, steps are carried out by proteins that are also named after these steps. Initiation is the initiation factor. Protein elongation is the elongator protein. Um, We um, broke elongation. So the cell, the starting codon could still arrive to where it's supposed to go, but the Following information couldn't get carried out because we replaced elongation with uh, its own ancestral version. So we inserted roughly a 700 million year old elongation factor protein after removing the modern gene. So we made this ancient modern hybrid. Organism
0: and that essentially creates, in some way, the ancient version of that organism.
1: I wouldn't say so. It's the it's a it's a hybrid organism. It's not necess- because you the rest of this cell, the rest of the uh, genome is still modern,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that goes back to the difference between Jurassic Park. There are many differences. Obviously, given that this is not fiction, we're doing it. But also, um, we are not necessarily... I think in Jurassic Park, they are taking an ancient... They find an ancient organism and then put a modern gene inside the ancient organism. Mm -hmm. In our case, we are still working with what we got, but putting an ancestral DNA inside the modern organism. So
0: you're like taking a new car and putting an old engine into it? In a way, yeah yes and seeing what happens
1: yes in but in our case it's more like a transformer than just a regular car it is doing things
0: <laughs> it's yeah so it's a more complicated organism than just a car okay. yeah uh, i got it so what is that what does that teach you
1: we we wanted to understand multiple things one is the how does the cell respond to perturbation and we didn't just put the ancient dna we Inserted, we um, sampled DNA from currently existing organisms, so the cousins of this microbe, mm-hmm. uh, and, and collected DNA sequences from the cousins as well. So both ancestor and the current cousin DNA, so to speak, and engineered all of these things to the modern bacteria and generated a collection of microbes uh, that either have the ancient component or the variant uh, elongator component that still alive today but coming from a different part of the tree
0: so you broke elongation was that something you did uh, uh, as part of the paper on evolutionary stalling to try to figure out how evolution figures out what to try to improve did that help
1: yes because we were not supposed to mess with the translation that's exactly what we did Mm -hmm. and we altered elongation by changing it with different versions of elongation that are either coming from species that still are around today. Uh, you can imagine them as sitting on the tips of the tree, near branch, far branch, to uh, compare to the organism that we're working with, cousins, distant cousins, as well as the ancestors of the bacteria that uh, we are now modifying.
0: How much different uh, variation is there in that elongation step? Like what, what are the different flavors of elongation?
1: That's a very good question. So mechanistically or mechanically, it's the same. It's it's very conserved. So all life elongates the same way. You are, it's nothing but a shuttle. You just carry an, um, the chemical with you, the, the bit to the heart of the machine.
0: Is it essentially doing like a copy paste operation?
1: It has its tail that's attached to the the uh, code, which is then carried uh, biochemically to the linear chain to the core of ribosome. And the and it sits on there, it's released and the peptides click, uh, the, the codes rather click. Once that chemistry that is at the tail end occurs, the protein leaves the... Um, Center, so it, you can imagine, it's like it hops in there and hops out, mm-hmm. and when it hops and hops out, it leaves the information behind. That's all it does: is bring the information, get out of there, and it's all triggered by uh, biophysics, biochemistry, because of the way the enzyme chews energy. In this case, GTP, half the uh, the phosphor leaves the center that kicks, that gives the, the additional kick um, to the enzyme to leave the center.
0: So, what which parts are different then? Where's the flavors it's, of different flavors so usually, of the location?
1: Usually, the parts that matter don't change over time. Nature conserves the sites of these proteins that are important for its job. Uh, if there's a difference, then we we want to know, especially if if there's a difference between two cousins, and in we look at the sites uh, that interact with the most important parts of this machinery. If we see any difference, we tend to mutate or we revert, we, we engineer that part, we alter that part because it gives us a clue that there must be something interesting going on here or not.
0: Okay, so that's not the the fundamental part of the machinery, but it's some flavorful characteristic that you can play with.
1: So now you stripped the machinery down to its parts, and now you are looking at the parts of the parts. Okay. And um, it depends uh, where you're looking and how you're looking and what you're looking at. But usually we see uh, up to 70% level uh, conserved identity across all modern uh, versions. When you travel back in time, uh, the identity decreases. So elongation likely existed. Uh, We have good reason to think that it existed at the dawn of life. So you're looking at a 3.8 billion year old mechanism. And when we look at the ancestors that we resurrect, we see about uh, 40% identity. So the identity definitely decreases as you go back in time, but still 60% shared information over 4 billion years year is pretty good.
0: Is that just for elongation or for the entire translation?
1: Depends on what you do. So for uh, initiation, we've also recently published this. It's a different uh, story. Uh, But overall, you see high level of um, identity that that is kept intact especially if the component is essential for life
0: okay so 40% and 60% 70% you said but like from generation to generation how does evolution and presumably that's what that paper is looking at is the parts of the parts yeah. how does so, how, how does it uh able to say like mess with the parts and try to come up with a cooler improved version of the organism. Yeah,
1: so let me describe to you what we did in that experiment. We took a different, uh, we took bacteria, we perturbed the elongation in all of these with mm-hmm. different variants. So we had an initial set of, um, a group of bacteria that we had. We then subjected these bacteria to evolution in the lab. All right, so we, uh, first of all, we knew we broke it because upon engineering, we measured What's going on with the cell? It's not growing as well. They're not healthy. We can see it with our eyes. We can measure it. That if they were generating an offspring every 20 minutes, now it is 40 minutes, mm-hmm. right? So we really messed them up. They don't want to work with this thing. They don't want each other, but they need each other. So we created that situation for them, mm-hmm. which is good because we want uh, to see how uh, we wanted to see how they will uh, cooperate with each other. Uh, to fix this problem because we know that that's not the condition that they want to live in, especially when they know what they can do. Mm-hmm. So with that, we subjected these organisms to evolution in the lab. That's uh, We refer to this as experimental evolution. We subject bacteria to different selection pressure, uh, project them through bottlenecks. Every day, we randomly collect a handful of bacteria from the flask, give them, put them in a new fresh environment with fresh food, keep them in this environment for 24 hours until they reach a more dormant state. And then we subject, uh, introduce them to a new environment. So we repeated this for about, um, I will say 150 days. So every day, uh, nonstop, we repeated this experiment.
0: Some kind of, uh, how much, uh... How many different kinds of environments are there?
1: We we kept the environments to the same, and because we had different initial conditions, we kept the environment constant, same temperature, same food, same source of carbon, uh, but we uh, created replicates for each uh, lineage. So in some ways we created our own fossil record mm-hmm. in the lab by evolving and generating these flasks. And every, every step of the way we also Froze these cells uh, and took stocks of them in the in the cryo freezer.
0: How long does it take to go from one generation to the next of bacteria?
1: If you uh, for E. coli, it's usually twenty minutes.
0: Okay, great. So that's the experiment. That's the experiment. And and you're you're always messing with it in the same way for the initial.
1: It's the it's the condition? same way. So we we introduce variation at the elongation level because. The, So because we perturbed it with different elongations, we found that if we introduce a different protein that is very different, the cells don't like that, right? So if the distance is larger, the consequence is also large, meaning that you hit them harder if you introduce a variant that is really foreign to them, that's really distant. In in our case, it was the ancestor. They really did not like the ancestor, but they were okay with their nearest cousin, (laughs)
0: Right, okay, great. So you did vary in the distance.
1: We varied at the evolutionary distance and then we kept the experimental conditions the same and we propagated these populations every day for 150 days and we collected um, bacteria at every step of the way and looked at the sequence. We wanted to understand what sort of changes may have happened in the genome to respond to uh, the variation that we've introduced
0: so what kind of changes are you, would you be seeing, depending on the evolutionary distance of the thing you shoved into it?
1: Exactly, so we knew where we punched, right? We punched right the heart, right? We punched the translation. So we expected, is it gonna be, is it translation? Are we gonna see a change? Will translation respond to this by fixing itself right away? Mm-hmm. Or will it be um, another, uh, outside of translation, something completely different, a different module? Because translation itself is a module. Uh, or it would be within elongation; a really sub-protein level thing. So we uh, had a strategy to un- identify uh, the mutational pathways by categorizing what we expected to find or where.
0: Okay, so why does it not do multitasking? <laughs> <laughs> why is it not a... improving multiple things at the same si- simultaneously?
1: It turned out that. What we observed in general is that, first of all, the harder we hit the cells, the more likely they were to respond by changes right at where we hit it.
0: When you say hit it, you mean like change the, something. About I like the to think life.
1: of it as hitting because we're. Just... I like to think of it as breaking the cell, right? I mean, not breaking enough to kill it, but we still because they're still alive, they're not doing their job well.
0: So the 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 bigger the evolutionary distance of the thing you. Put in there the, the 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 heart of the hit is how you exactly. think about it. The bigger the hammer, bigger the hit, hammer. Exactly, you hit it with. Okay,
1: it, that's what it turned out to be because that's what the data told us that if we um, if the variation is higher, then the uh, consequences will also be higher in the sense that the cells will not grow as healthy compared to a, a variant that is coming from a near uh, or a variant that is coming from a near evolutionary distance.
0: Uh, is it is it wrong to think of this kind of hitting as a um... It came to a mutation or no? What are we supposed to learn from this hitting? Like how how the thing evolves after it's, it's being hit in this way? What does that teach us?
1: Because we see translation machinery as almost, um, it is so conserved and so essential. It is not even clear whether we can remove some of the parts or whether the entire translation will need all of the same parts in the same efficiency. Mm-hmm. We don't understand the rules of this machinery so the first thing we understand is that how, what is the resilience? What are we really talking about wow. here when we talk about you cannot mess with this translation? Is this true? Because it is so conserved and so similar and functions in the most conserved ways, uh, that was the first thing that we wanted to understand. Did, did you
0: learn anything interesting about the resilience at the chemical, physical, informatic, computational? No, biological?
1: I I wouldn't say that. I th- In the biological level, yes, because we found that the... Different modules started responding to the changes that we've introduced, and that we could never recover the translation as effectively as it used to be. So that it never reached to it is um, uh, optimality; that it was always suboptimal. It, it needed say one more mutation perhaps to get there. It uh, accumulated four mutations. That was we did a lot of experiments to understand this. Of course, it was accumulating mutations. It was getting better at its task maybe it needed a couple other mutations to get really good at it, but somehow those mutations never happened. And before those mutations happened, we saw another module um, emerging through mutations and getting better at its own different tasks that is not translation. You can think of cell as a web of networks, right? Uh, And we think of this as multiple almost airports that are proteins that are more central hubs versus there are proteins that maybe are not as important hub. If you introduce a problem in the most populated hub, you're going to mess up the traffic system more drastically. And and that's what we were messing with in, in the biological terms as well.
0: So when we say module, like translation would be one of the modules. Translation would be one. So you're basically saying when you mess with translation, the organism would choose to either try to fix that module or another module depending,
1: exactly, but
0: it wouldn't do multiple modules. It wouldn't do
1: multiple modules. It focused on one module at a time. And right before that module maybe reached to its own maximum, it stalled its uh, optimality at a certain degree. So you never get to a degree that is more optimal uh, than you can achieve, even though perhaps another mutation could get you there.
0: Since you messed with the translation, from a sort of optimal perspective, wouldn't it make sense for the cell to try to start fixing the translation?
1: Not that's exactly what we thought, and it didn't, it was not the case for all the broken translation missionaries. For instance, if the variant was coming from a near ancestor, that didn't happen. It was almost cruising around, trying different modules, and sort of living its best life still without, uh, because there's no real urgency in the system to fix the most important problem. And perhaps. there's
0: also not a direction, you know, maybe to you it's obvious that's the problem, but to the cell. Maybe you're the problem. I'm living, like you said, my best life. Like we don't. I mean, I guess that's the thing about evolution is we don't know what the right direction to. Yeah, it's it
1: almost like the, you can imagine that you have this me- messy closet, and um, you know, you can. Go on.
0: You- <laughs> <laughs> Happens <laughs> and, to be an accurate <laughs> representation and, and, of my life. So but you can't. You, can,
1: you you take a look at it and you see all the sweaters or you know yeah. jeans are all over the place, and then you look at a drover that has socks coming out of it and you think that's the most important one. I'm just going to fix that one. And and then you fix that one and then you think you will get to the other one, but you don't because you just fix the most important one. That is the, whatever that was getting into your way. That's really what evolution is. It's quite lazy. It fixes the problem that seems to be the most immediate and it doesn't go beyond what it really needs to. It seems like at least for our experimental setup, that was the case.
0: Uh, especially for rapidly evolving systems. So like, is the environment they're operating in pretty constrained? Like, is there a urgency? I
1: would, I would, th- I would say that we definitely constrain the environments. It's definitely removed from their natural s- s- setup. We are not evolving them in a the gut. It's a very homogeneous system, very controlled, controlled temperature, controlled food, controlled carbon.
0: So, just looking at that, let me ask the the romantic question: uh, How did evolution create so much beautiful, complex variety on Earth? Like from that you're saying that we're talking about improving different modules, but if we step back and look at the entirety of the tree of the different organisms that created all throughout history, the, the stuff that's fun to you with the, the, the first few billion and the, the stuff that's fun to me when I watch on YouTube, which is like the the lion versus gorilla fights and so on. Uh, but the whole thing is fun. So with all that beautiful variety from the predator and the prey, uh, from the self-replicating bacteria and all that kind of stuff, How did it do it?
1: How is a very difficult question, especially when we don't understand um, the past with clarity at all. I can tell you that there seems to be very critical innovations that happened throughout the history of life uh, that are each themselves very sophisticated singularities that emerged once and then they set the tone, one of which is emergence of translation. It seems like it happened once. It had to happen once. Seems like that's all it took. 3.8 billion years, maybe older. Clearly uh, subjected to a lot of chemical evolution, even prior to the last universal common ancestor. And then you jump and you see um, emergence of cyanobacteria that undeniably changed the course of those planets in the subsequent aerobic um, photosynthesis that life learned uh, how to utilize what's available in the environment in the most profound way. And then you move forward, you see the emergence uh, of eukaryotes, the endosymbiosis, also another singular event. And then you move forward, and then comes the plants. So these are, I counted, I think, six different things that seems to have happened just once. And so The
0: singularity events in the history of evolution of life on Earth.
1: So what's really fascinating here is that there seems to be two different courses, the time course. Evolution or it, it is operating at the molecular level, right? We're talking about seconds. We're talking about mutations that happen every second. We're talking about selection that's also happening under a minute, right? So that is a very fast process. The fact that I can evolve bacteria in a lab and I say, almost complainingly, oh my goodness, it took me 150 days, I mean, that's pretty rapid to, for for a change to be seen. But then the big changes and the ones that I'm talking, the really big innovations that increased, that caused an increase of oxygen on this planet or even its own mere presence are due to these molecular innovations, seems to only happen a handful of times. Over billions of years of time scale.
0: Let me ask you this question, having to do with my half asleep tweet. So, saying that we all originated from one common ancestor, um, that's just one of the miraculous things about life on Earth. Of course, you could say there's multiple common ancestors in the beginning, multiple organisms, and so on. But the other stuff that you're talking about is, is these singular events, these leaps of invention throughout evolutionary in history. Now, there's a bunch of people who were commenting, a bit surprising to me, who were basically skeptical of this idea. The idea of? Well, I would say evolution, honestly. The process of evolution, but when you just actually focus in on like, holy crap, um uh, Eukaryotes were invented. Holy crap! Photosynthesis was invented. Like those are incredible inventions. And also, we can even go to Homo sapiens. Like intelligence. Like where did that come from? It's it, these mysteries. I think where that skeptical comments are coming from, were also just the general skepticism of science. I think from the pandemic, people maybe a failure of institutions and so on. They. they um, there's been a growing distrust of science. And it's not so, so much that it's anti-evolution, it's, it's more of a stepping back and saying, wait a minute, maybe scientists don't have it all figured out. And I think uh, to steel man that case is almost a step back and to realize there's so much mystery to each of these leaps. Uh, so it makes you wonder, is there something that in 100, 200 years we'll figure out that we totally don't understand yet. Like some, uh, you know, there's, I I talked to a bunch of people about another mystery, which is consciousness, right? And there's people called panpsychists who believe consciousness is one of the fundamental laws of the universe. So there could be, um, you know, like we have laws of physics that could be something that's like a consciousness field or something that permeates all matter. And so like there might be, uh, it's kind of like Newtonian physics versus general relativity. Like we have a good understanding of how things happen, but we need another layer of understanding to fill in the gaps of the mysteries of it all. And that sort of is a sobering reality that maybe there is something we really deeply don't understand. Do you have a sense of where the biggest mysteries here are? Is it at the origin of life itself? Is it the leaps? That we're talking about so you you see the beauty you're fascinated about the translation mechanism what what are the deep mysteries there to you
1: we are nothing but chemical systems capable of um, formulating or answering questions about our own existence right
0: we humans or all of life you think Oh, humans, no,
1: no. humans are. Uh, I mean, the fact that we can, we even have this conversation about uh, our um, place in the universe is, is uh, at least to our knowledge, is quite specific to our own chemical species. But
0: yeah, it's kind of wild. We're 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 uh, introspecting on our evolutionary history, and we're just a couple of organisms.
1: Yes, and we'd
0: like another organism listening to this and like they're mind blown there's like three organisms two of them talking and the third one's like holy shit
1: (laughs) I think that understanding the what I really find interesting about understanding origin of life or or even contemplating about our own place in the universe if at the end of this would come down to appreciating uh, or even before appreciating really truly comprehending what it is that we got here um That to me is a huge gain because there's no single question in biology, I think, that will give that, that will deliver that magnitude of that message and understanding. But understanding how life here started at first place, if if we we truly comprehend that, this is not a concept that is well thought in schools. We ask students to memorize these concepts if they are lucky they learned RNA world. Chicken and egg problem, etc. That's the extent to which that got, maybe their biology teacher was personally interested in the subject matter, if they're lucky. You know the saying that the the uh, brain brains are evenly distributed uh, across any metric you can imagine, but opportunities are not. So if p- people aren't understanding the importance of this is because that's a lack of opportunity right there. That was skipped through the proper education and training in the delivery of why science matters or how science actually works. Yeah, but how
0: do you even begin to uh, seriously think about the origin of life? I mean, uh, every problem of existence, of life, has its time. So I don't know if it's time to understand consciousness yet. We might be a 100 years away from that. The origin of life, I don't know if it's time for us to understand that yet. Maybe we need to solve so many more problems along the way. And it's so- It's not a
1: competition of problems, right? So there are all kinds of problems and it takes a lot of people to make the world. So you will always have some interesting brain going after an interesting problem to their own. The issue here is that we, we need to, first of all, understand that we, what we have going on on this planet is pretty good. Good planets are hard to find. If we are alone yep. in the universe, that's, that's huge. We need to take care of what we got here. And we are incredibly vulnerable to the changes that our own species also helped create on, at the biosphere, at the ecosystem level we take it for granted. We take what we created for granted because of the fact that we think we are some sort of ultimate end point, the most sophisticated, amazing thing that nature could generate. I yeah. think understanding, not even understanding, but asking these questions of where did this even come from? How did this even begin? And, Attempting to understand that using chemistry and physics and biology, and because we can, that's the ultimate gift we can give back to the entire species on this planet.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's humbling. It's humbling to realize the uh, the complexity of this whole mechanism. It certainly puts humans in their proper perspective, that we're not... Um, just because we have brains and brains are intelligent doesn't mean... We're the most intelligent thing because ultimately the the whole mechanism of nature seems to be orders of magnitude more intelligent. All all of it, like we're we're a bunch, of, we're like a hierarchy of organisms that have a history of several billion years, and that all somehow came together to make a human. And there'll be life after us, just as was life before us, and something that comes after will be perhaps even more fascinating. Yeah, uh,
1: I think when you understand the magnitude of what happened here. There is there is no room for arrogance. It should overwhelm you and humiliate it's pretty humiliating. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, it's 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 quite amazing what 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 was what happened here. And there is no other discipline that will deliver that but exploring our own origins and looking at life as a more planetary system phenomena rather than one single species at a time. A collective look
0: uh, you mentioned this question in your TED Talk, is the two possibilities of the universe being full of life and the universe being empty and we're the only life in the universe. Um, how do you feel about both options? Just actually you as a single chemical organism introspecting about its existence in this world?
1: It's. Having a planet full of life is interesting because there are, we talked about life being all about chemistry, exploring solutions. Mm-hmm. And having solutions in front of you is is, is great. It's beneficial,
0: right? S- solutions being different organisms. Like other humans, you see them as the solutions to a chemistry problem. D-
1: different, different, uh, yeah. Oh, that's I an don't... interesting
0: solution. That's <laughs> not, next time we're in Austin, so there's a bunch of weirdos. Every time I see a weirdo, i would be like, oh, that's an interesting <laughs> solution to this chemistry problem. I'm <laughs>
1: <laughs> so now I'm, you think like an origin of life science,
0: but it's, <laughs> it's funny that that one worked out. Let's see but, where else it goes.
1: But having this emptiness and the unpredictability of uncovering a novel solution can also have its own benefits, and and we should uh, be open to. What other solutions might be out there and in exploring those solutions?
0: Or to different chemistry problems. Different so that's where you problems. see You see the other planets out there as different chemistry problems. To
1: their own local environment, yes.
0: So how many chemistry problems have solutions that are lifelike to you out there in the universe?
1: It's a wide open palette, if you think about it. I don't quite know. It's the we know the the chemistry is chemistry. I don't think the chemistry will be different elsewhere. But again, what is selected biochemistry will be determined by the environment most likely.
0: See, I think there is life everywhere out there. So there's a guy named Nick Lane whose gut, and it's interesting to me, uh, I wonder what you think about it is, his gut is there's life everywhere out there, but it stops at like the bacteria stage. So he says the eukaryotes, is like the biggest invention and the hardest one.
1: I wonder if he thinks that's an accidental outcome, if, if he thinks that's inevitable. I wonder what that means. But it's it's very, it's very a likely possibility that the uh, uh, bacterial or microbial life is definitely more attainable. Um,
0: so that's, that's a weird world where our entire galaxy just has but our, bacteria so, everywhere.
1: So, you know, if you don't like microbes, you are on the wrong planet.
0: No, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and viruses. I don't know which one there's more it's, of, but they're they're both, and most of them are like productive.
1: They're fascinating. They they yeah. do everything for us.
0: If <laughs> you don't know, like microbes, you're on the wrong planet. Uh, you're full of good lines. Okay, right, right. Uh, I just can't, there's like an imperative to the whole thing. To me, the, the origin is the hard question, but once it gets going, I just don't see Wait.
1: Mm-hmm. There, Go ahead.
0: It seems like it's constantly creating more intelligent things, more fascinating, complex things. They're able to solve. That's more a more very that's problems. a
1: very interesting. Like that's I I definitely agree that the initial steps may be the ultimate determinants. That once it's it's you, you cannot stop it once it starts. It's possible, right? And um,
0: I just I, have never unearthed, Maybe, but maybe ugh, I, I just whenever i see life it seems to flourish but everywhere it, the thing is i don't the, the only thing i haven't seen is the start of it
1: exactly but that, and how are we going to understand that if we don't the origin of life uh, science i mean that that's the and and the, the question here isn't exactly our ability to recapitulate everything that happened in the exact way that it happened right this is about what can happen rather than, or maybe how? It you you can think it's
0: possible to study the origin of language using English? So, like, there's a very particular chemistry here. There's a particular set of assumptions, understanding about what life is, what everything is. Our perception of reality is very specifically constructed through the evolutionary process. I wonder if it's possible to get to some first principles, deep understanding of how life originates in such a way that you can actually construct it on other planets. I, ultimately, it, it feels like if you're doing it in a lab on earth, you're always going to be using some aspect of the life that's already here.
1: So uh, that's what I sort of talked about in my talk as well. And- um, Everyone should go.
0: Watch the TED Talks. Very good. the The annoying thing to me about TED Talks, I guess, it's by design, is they're too short. It's like, <gasps> come on.
1: <laughs> and did you know that it, there's no prompter involved?
0: There's no tell, wait. There is or there isn't. Yeah, you have to memorize stuff. You're yeah.
1: It's a. Uh... And it thanks, thanks to my uh, amazing uh, editor, who probably is watching this too, David Bello, that yeah. it was very, very helpful. But I very would say professional
0: that organization. I like this podcast. It's a very professional organization. I, I, res- I respect that medium. Uh, yeah. Anyway, the, in the in the time talk about yeah, life, life creating life.
1: So it's a likely scenario that once we understand how life as a chemical system, is is capable of formulating its own expression and generating a memory and manages its existence on a planetary body for billions of years. Once we understand what conditions gave rise to that, we may be very likely to understand whether a different planet also be likely to instigate its own chemical revolution if it were it was provided by through some missing ingredients you can think of it as a sending fertilizer to a different planet that is missing its own chemical composition or lacking or that it needs more of what it has the difference between making that planet Earth-like, which was this is this is not what that's about. We're not talking about terraforming, or we you're not talking about turning that planet into Earth-like system. We are talking about first understanding that planet, studying its chemistry, studying its its properties well enough to understand whether it is close to its own chemical revolution, and maybe giving it that extra nudge. So th- this is obviously a pretty big speculation and suggestion. And it's quite a very interesting proposition because this is a yes or no question, right? This is, this is the ultimate would you rather. It's, it's the, and I think it says a lot about uh, the perception of the person who's answering this question, that if the answer is no, 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 we, absolutely not, that's not something we want to do, I want to know why that is the case.
0: So just to be clear, what we're talking about is looking at the chemical cocktail of a particular planet Yes. And having like tasting it and seeing uh, seeing what's missing. So having a very systematic rigorous scientific process of understanding what is missing, not what is missing in terms of to make it Earth-like, but what is missing in order to be sufficiently, uh, have the spark or the capacity of the spark to launch the uh, evolution revolution. The evolutionary process. Exactly. And, so, And then the question is, do we want to then f- complete the cocktail?
1: The proposition is to also make us think that we will likely have this capacity at some point, especially when we understand origin of life better and better, right? So we, we will be asking ourselves this question. I guess I wanted to bring this to daylight a little bit because... Uh, maybe in 10 20 years maybe more
0: so you wanted to ask the ethical question should we uh, basically st- start life elsewhere on another or, planet
1: or enable the the, the chemical uh, the chemical capacity of that planet that it may one day itself get there
0: okay so for me the answer is yes uh, so if you were to try to argue against my yes, what would you say? Why not? What's the worst that can happen if we seed another planet with life? What are the things we should think about? Is your main concern a chemical, biological one, or is it an ethical one? What do you think about? Well, the
1: worst thing that can happen is that it wouldn't work, right? So that it's not a, a likely. It's not likely that any attempt like this would work. That's probably. Because how you do you, so? you gotta be very, you know, you have to have an understanding that I don't think we have just yet.
0: I see, because if it doesn't work, then we could try again, right? To me, the worst case, the thing I would be worried about is we create life. I mean, the same stuff I worry about, like with plants or, is things that might have a conscious experience. And then, the the dark aspect of life is life is increasingly complex life. Maybe I'm anthropomorphizing, but it seems to have the capacity to suffer. Huh. And so we're creating something. It's like when you have children, you put creatures into this world that um, will suffer, can suffer, and may suffer, depending on how you view life, may likely suffer, and so now you carry this responsibility for doing your best to alleviate any suffering they might go through. And that that uh, perhaps is uh, romanticizing this notion of life. Perhaps bacteria are not capable of suffering, but perhaps it'll create more complex life forms that would be able to suffer. Um, and that feels like a responsibility as well. Of course, other people would be concerned the more obvious concern is like, well, you just created a life form. How do you know it's not gonna be a super deadly virus that somehow is able to hurt humans? Yeah, my, my concern is more, I feel like that's a solvable problem. The problem of creating conscious beings that are able to suffer, that's a tricky one.
1: Yeah, I can see why. Because it goes back to, again, do, would we, first of all, um, do we ha- have a responsibility to propagate more uh, of this chemistry that we have on this planet elsewhere, given that we know ultimately we will be vanished. By we, I mean entire planet. And if this is, a, in fact, a very rare chemical event that happens because all the uh, right circumstances came together and we were the lucky one, do we have... Uh, had a responsibility to sponsor it. This is, a, if, if we were to back up- Sponsor, I like it. <laughs>
0: That's a good way to put it, yeah. If,
1: if we try to uh, back up remnants of our civilization, right? So we wanna potentially create conditions on the different planets so that humans can survive, given that we know or we want to, just, just for the sake of growing.
0: Yeah, propagating, but, uh, becoming a multi species.
1: Exactly. But what really is at stake here, I think, is, is, is actually, or what is really more interesting is what we don't see, which is, the again, that, the chemical behavior that enabled everything at first place. That's different than sending potato crops or engineering bacteria to live on a different planet. That's very different. You're really go- stripping it down to what is, what what is possible at the chemical level? So even if you are instigating the chemistry on different planets, you are letting that very planet to do its thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You are not necessarily contaminating this planet with different chemistry because the idea behind this, at least the way I would I, I thought about, is that you understand that planet, you understand the conditions, you understand the chemistry of the planet really well before choosing the planet as a candidate at first place. And then, it's not about sending a missing ingredient, per se, but again, just sending more of what it already has. This That would be respecting that planet's condition too. So I'm not suggesting any occupation. I'm not suggesting any colonization. I'm not suggesting any, like, let's just strip everything and make everything Earth-like. Mm-hmm. That's not what I'm saying. It's more about empowering that place. What you are saying is, is likely to be the, the motivator behind all this, that's not because I see suffering, I see pain. It's, it's very interesting. I think this is a question that really reveals about, a lot about the person who's answering it.
0: Well, okay, so the pushback on my pushback. If I so am deeply troubled by suffering, then I should be probably paralyzed about the history of life on earth. And um, you know, there's-
1: Can you elaborate? What do you mean?
0: Most of life who's ever lived suffered in ways that are almost unimaginable to me.
1: You mean um, like our own species?
0: Our own species and before, and animals living today. And we're not even talking about factory farms. Uh, We're just uh, animals living in extreme poverty in the jungle. You don't people think like in the natural environment animals live in a happy place. No, it's a brutal place of desperately trying to survive, of desperately trying to look for food. Yeah. And it's just like all of that life, that's just mammals. And we understand mammals, but like throughout like trillions of organisms that led up to those mammals and the organisms living everywhere, like even bacteria, there's death everywhere. So maybe this idea of death, this idea of suffering is actually this thing that we see as a bug is actually a feature.
1: I don't think suffering is a linear property like that with life. And I may be with Nick Lane on this one that the likeliness of anything similar to what we got here, evolving in another planetary body, I think is quite low.
0: Where where would you say is the the biggest unlikely thing? Do you mean humans or do you mean even multicellular organisms?
1: Probably multicellular, multicellularly multicellularity it's uh but i I understand the both sides of the equation right in in one level, I can see that we may not have any other choice but to uh back up this chemistry somewhere else, yeah, so you would be saving it's the ultimate sa- saving or the record- our our own record, it's not about you know yes, let's also save um Beatles and all the amazing songs, but this would be the ultimate uh, repository of life. But it's I can also see your point of view, for sure.
0: It's really interesting. So like, don't see the plan with a missing ingredient. Try to understand what the ingredients it has. Is it possible to construct life? Uh, for me, from uh, from a computer person, it just feels like something that could be solved computationally
1: we can learn from the mistakes that we've done here and aspire not to repeat them it is possible we we do amazing things as humans there's a lot of suffering but there's also a lot of beauty and and we we could choose what we want to be or what we want to uh, see right so the, the, the these attempts don't need not to come from need not to come from a place of fear But it can be ultimately, can come from a piece of hope and love.
0: I think we're just very recently figuring out stuff. Like we've, even just a century ago, we're doing atrocities that uh, weren't seen as atrocities at the time. I mean, I think we're learning very quickly of what is right and wrong.
1: Yes. And I work with a lot of, maybe because I'm at the university, I get to teach young people every day. uh, Even at a time of four year or three few years, you see a generational difference already in unfolding in front of you. And maybe that's why I see hope because I think what we get to interact with in classrooms every year is getting better. They are aware of issues in a way that I sure wasn't at their age. In some levels I was, but in many levels I didn't think about I, I wasn't concerned of the problems. Well, they maybe have to be concerned because it's hitting the reality. it's hitting them hard. But younger people are not afraid of these things. An eighteen-year-old can face these brutal facts about the planet in ways that I don't think any other generation before them
0: did. Yeah, it's super cool. And and like the uh, you know, there's all these cool technologies that aid in the process of uh, a human being. Uh, being able to see the truth at deeper, deeper levels. Like, you know, Wikipedia and just the internet in general is enabling education at a level that was unimaginable before the internet. Yes,
1: and I think space exploration, uh, even contemplating about these possibilities, ultimately, and I will emphasize this again, should make us think about our own place in the universe. If we are alone, that is quite fascinating. And we definitely have a responsibility to guard what we got better and protect it better and don't take it for granted. If we are not the only one, that's also a lot of responsibility to understand what else is out there. So either proposition, as famously being told, is fascinating. But as a as a scientist, I think, and I think that's a general behavior, maybe not my fellow scientists listening to this can correct me if they aren't like this, but you need to have a level of optimism and and hope it, that's something you know. That things are worth worth working for, worth dreaming, worth imagining, and we cannot just have fear of suffering or fear of pain uh, stopping us from doing marvelous things.
0: I've talked to quite a few people in my life who've done, who've gotten a lot of shit done, have helped a lot of people, and I don't know a single one of them who's not an optimist. Now, there's a place for critics and cynicism in this world, but in terms of actually building things and creating things in this world that help a lot of people, um, I think optimism is a is, is a requirement, is a precondition in almost all cases in my limited, humble human experience. But I tend to, when I look out there, think that aliens are everywhere. I think there's, to me, I have a humility about I tend to see us humans as being very limited cognitively. Like there's so many things we don't understand. I think eventually we'll understand, of course we don't know this, but my gut says we'll understand that alien signals and life has been all around us. And we're too dumb to see it. Like whatever life is, whatever the life force is, whatever consciousness is, whatever intelligence, whatever the the mechanism that led to the origin of life on Earth was everywhere. And we were just too dumb to see it. It's in the physics. It's somewhere, we'll find it somewhere in the physics.
1: I think the that's one of the most it's humbling parts of also being a scientist, that we know that we never know for sure. And for the outsiders, perhaps, that may be a very... Um, strange way of living uh, especially when your pursuit is about creating knowledge uh, and that you'll know that what you created can also be and hopefully will be uh, disproven so that another level will rise um, and, th- and I think we've seen that the this lack of maybe connection between the approach to science or knowledge versus um, folks who are maybe not thinking about these problems every day, that we are okay with being wrong. That's In fact, we know that uh, that's the only way to push the limits of knowledge.
0: How do you think life originated on Earth? We've talked about this a bit. Do you have, do you have a gut feeling about, for, first of all, actually even to step back, do you think, because you were like flirting with this idea, is, did the translation mechanism came before life?
1: I think that you cannot separate from, uh, Translation emergence of translation machinery from emergence of life, or something like translation machinery, this whole informatic chemical computing system that is also capable of dynamism and evolvability that comes with biology, biological behavior from emergence of life itself. We've definitely took a lot of steps towards understanding origins. We are able to create molecules from Right environments, lightning, heat, and you make amino acids. So we we are able to create the building blocks. The Miller-Urey experiment, that's now like sixty years ago. We are able to uh, create the building blocks. We are able to make them interact with one another. They can get more complex. Some call this messy. There's all this chemistry that's going on. We are able to have these chemicals interact with one another. Maybe. Um, have even some emergent properties that we can quantify. Definitely there is this trend towards more systems-level approach to origins with more introduction of systems-level chemistry more network-level chemistry uh, and complex system integration in order to understand how now that we can make these building blocks, we can make them interact with one another, but how do we make them interact with one another in more intelligent ways that will... Have the properties of a biological system. It will be heritable. It will be responding to the environment. It will mutate, and it will sustain itself. That is the final bit, I think, in in our uh, origin of life adventure. And we are extremely close. I I'm very optimistic that our community will get a handle of this problem in in this decade. This is, in fact, I think, one of the most exciting times to be doing this work.
0: What would be super convincing to you, like? incredibly amazing, would blow your mind if it, it was done, X was done in a lab. Like what would you, I mean, I don't know if you would call it origin of life, but something really truly remarkable and special done in a lab. What would that look like to you?
1: The, the this properties that I listed, this was five properties that I listed about and the machinery that is capable of sensing and responding to the environment. If we can, um, I would imagine it's similar to Miller-Urey experiment where they only um, sparked uh, in particular environmental forces and were able to produce a chemical that is important for life or a mix of uh, chemicals important for life or building blocks rather. I would. If I saw that a similar experiment where a well-defined geochemical parameter was subjected on a mix of chemistry, which led that chemistry to form some level of computation, informatic, biological property, and by biological, I'm going to keep it to very minimum, um, as I defined early on, um, that would be super exciting to me. A self-organizing Chemistry that we can create experimentally in a flask by simulating the conditions of early Earth, be it radiation, be it temperature, or mix of both, um, that would be very cool.
0: And doing all the five the the chemical, physical, inf- informatic computational biology. Yes. So, like simulation and a computer would not no would not be good. It
1: would be great because it they help to understand the parameters maybe formulate, maybe quantify, create models, but ultimately you need to experiment.
0: Unless it's quantum mechanical simulation, but that's going to be extremely difficult. So simulating from the physics up, that's going to be very, cause you're gonna have to simulate the the physical, the chemical, the informatic. I mean, honestly, it's, it's, it's very start to, it's very difficult to start the quantum mechanics and end up in biology. All through simulation, yeah. but the stuff that DeepMind did with alpha fold and protein folding is really inspiring. It's a, it's inspiring in that you're able to do to solve a difficult biology problem.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's why there's definitely a lot of benefit to those models' predictions because they at least uh, help the exper- experimentalist to c- come up with the priors and parameterize things better. Maybe eliminate very obvious dead ends early on, given that experiments take such a long time and it's a huge investment. Um and no one's a better experimentalist than nature. So
0: let me let me ask you perhaps a depressing, sad for you question. You
1: really want to make me sad. You're not gonna win. <laughs>
0: no I know. <laughs> There's a flame of optimism in you that will never be extinguished. Okay. Uh the idea of panspermia you mentioned would we seed another planet with life? Is it possible that our planet was seeded with life from elsewhere so
1: what the the, the proposition I made I like to think of it as protospermia rather than panspermia because What's it's even it's even more it's a more pr- proto state than the acknowledging because in in panspermia you still have a cell right you still have something that is very even a cell to me would be very earth like yeah right i'm i'm Talking be, I'm talking at subcellular level in, in the proposition of uh, uh, spreading
0: chemistry. So spreading chemical ingredients, not spreading life.
1: Exactly. It would be more like the fertilizer that is well-adopted and compatible with that planetary body. In panspermia, you're still imagining either an entire bacteria or microbe or a cell or something that is DNA, which is still Terran.
0: So in that sense, that would... That doesn't matter to you because it's it's chemistry. That's just the initial conditions. It doesn't matter how the initial conditions came to be; they are what they are, and let's go from there. Yeah. And there, there's all kinds of fascinatingly different initial conditions in terms of chemistry on yeah. different planets. Yes,
1: but but the, in terms of panspermia, I mean, obviously, that's that. There's going to be always room for that. Those sort of discussions, or there will be. Uh, those discussions will always be present. I think in any life in universe debates but the the problem i have with panspermia is that it it removes the problem from the planet to somewhere else it makes it very difficult to answer scientifically right you you are just you just took the problem away from this planet and uh, formulated it in a way that i cannot go and try to understand in the lab doing experiments or even through models. That
0: it though. So I've heard brilliant biologists like yourself say that, but I, I just, to me, okay, here's how I think of earth. So I, I actually am able to hold all these possibilities in my head and all of them are inspiring to me. I kind of think there's a possibility that earth is just an experiment by a graduate student, by an alien graduate student. Like
1: So I know the exact episode of Star Trek you're talking about. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but the, like there is some, to me, that's inspiring. If we are...
1: But that's not what uh, panspermia is about. That You're talking about my proposition. That's not what panspermia is.
0: What's panspermia? It is... Uh... Oh, life just came from elsewhere.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Still, that's interesting because oh. there's still giant leaps that happened on Earth, it seems like beyond the initial primitive organisms like eukaryotes.
1: I don't think panspermia usually uh, uh, articulates at the level of eukaryotes. I think they talk about b- bacteria primarily. I think, I yeah. think so.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. So that that's still interesting because all the different leaps of evolution still happen here on earth. That's still interesting. Yeah,
1: but it's, I mean, it, it's definitely um, interesting to listen to, but I I, I wouldn't, uh, place it in. A, I wouldn't know how to place it in the studies of origin of life. I guess. or, uh, or here's life.
0: how we place it. You have the initial conditions for the origin of life, and you try to create life in that way that you've described in the five components, and it keeps failing. So, you, what what panspermia allows you to do is to also consider the question: maybe there's missing components.
1: How do you answer that question?
0: Through exploration and through science,
1: yes. yeah, looking
0: outside, you... looking outside of Earth, looking at the fundamentals of chemistry and physics.
1: How do you understand that with fundamentals of chemi- chemistry and physics?
0: How do you understand? How do you understand pansper- gravity? But
1: you're talking about panspermia, right? Just I don't understand how would you. It's different than if if you think it's similar to looking for life in the universe. Is, is that what you're thinking?
0: No, I'm saying there's a missing component that came from elsewhere.
1: But a whole entire organism is not a missing component right? Like that, right? I mean, when you're thinking about origin of life.
0: No, no, no. That That's an assumption. <laughs> your your assumption is all the ingredients for the origin of life are here on Earth. Now, I tend to believe that most likely that's the case. I'm just saying it's inspiring to think that there is some ingredients. You're going to push back because that's not panspermia. That's past, But, but <laughs> <laughs>
1: See, okay, so think... Uh, the, 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 <laughs> But yeah, I am mean, It's also the-
0: kind of fun to push back on you. Uh no, I I, I understand. I understand. I understand if, if actually a living organism ended up here from elsewhere, that means a lot of the exploration we're doing here with the ingredients that we know will not give us the clues to the um to the origin of life. But it just seems like it's still very useful to try to create. Life here, and then we'll see wait a minute, don't you think we'll be able to prove not prove, but show that pasperma is very likely like if we just keep failing, we understand biology deeply see, we understand that's, that's chemistry deeply. I
1: don't I don't think so I mean there 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 will be the failure is is not going to indicate that this must have been I don't think anyone will put the problem to some some something else just because our failures, our experiments failed.
0: So failure means we don't understand the chemistry deeply enough.
1: Yeah, and and we given the progress we made and how many brilliant people are working on this right now, uh, and it's definitely more, I would say that we are approaching this problem in more broader ways, different ways possible. Uh, I'm confident that we will get there. For, for us, uh, again, we are interested in... Uh, early cells and first cells and what followed the origin of life, but we cannot be given that it's a continuum that's between the the origin and emergence of first cells, it's hard to separate these two ends from one another.
0: So given that life is a solution to a chemistry problem, if we re-ran earth a million times, how different would the results be? If we look at that wheel, How different would be the the tree of life, do you think? Like, what's your gut say?
1: My uh, mind asks, uh, are you imagining, if if we are repeating the planet 1 million times, are we seeing, um, are these things that happened, I'm not talking at the chemical level, but at the environment level, do they happen at the same time, at the same frequency, at the same intensity, every time you're running this tape over and over again?
0: Yes, you mean like geological stuff?
1: Yeah, like so. Is the so same... you're saying
0: those are important. I mean, that's that's. Yep. The fact that you would ask that question is also fascinating. So that's important. The, the, I... the timing, the frequency, the intensity of geological yeah, events. Yeah. So when
1: when we run this imaginary rewind and play experiments in our minds, I want to know whether we are positioning all the same geologic events at the same chronological order as well, or whether we are also giving them more randomness. So if the volcano erupted is it happening at the same time if if you have a are dinosaurs getting wiped off every time with the same meteorite that's hitting the same but
0: also like temperature changes temperature and all that changes kind of... everything That's actually I've heard you say somewhere that one of the things that's fascinating to you about this whole process of evolution is that the the mem- the memory the the process of evolution the all the mechanisms were invented and developed despite all the variation geologically, through the hardship that Earth has gone through.
1: That uh, the biological innovations persisted despite persisted. that? Persisted, yeah, yeah, despite
0: that. Which is which is interesting. You yeah. kind of think of the biological innovations kind of happening in their own.
1: Because we, so we uh, actually have a center exploring this problem. Uh, we wanna understand whether, it's almost like judging a book by its cover, right? Do you just look at an environment and then see whatever is present, or scarce in that environment, and then think that, okay, the life form that will exist in this environment will obviously have a lot of molybdenum in its system. Look at all this molybdenum around here. Mm-hmm. Or will it be, uh, because if you say that, you are now putting the environment in, in in the more prime driver role, right? That You're saying that environment will determine what biology will or will not use. Um, but, we've done studies that show that it's not necessarily this straightforward. That for instance, we looked at going back to nitrogen. Uh, One thing that's fascinating about the way cells fix nitrogen, uh, the ones that can do, uh, is that uh, they also do this through a lot of help of a lot of metals, a lot of elemental support really. And, which geologists use to understand where did this metabolism even evolved where at first place. So we look at ancient oceans, we try to understand the elemental composition of ancient oceans. And what we see is that in some cases, the metabolisms, even though they prefer a certain metal or an element that is in the environment, that metal wasn't abundant in the environment, but still life chose that. So it's not that straightforward as though whatever you you are, you are what you eat. But you don't necessarily eat what is obvious to you. And just because there's a lot of that food around you doesn't mean life will ultimately go there. Maybe most of the time it will, but it seems like in the case of nitrogen fixation, it didn't, and maybe that made the difference.
0: It's so cool that uh, right, it's not the abundant resource that's going to be the definition of what kind of life flourishes. So, so it's not it's not a straightforward thing. Yes, but your sense is that the different timing of the different conditions of the environment would change the way evolution happens.
1: Yeah, for instance, I mean, there, there, I think it's in the eighties, maybe earlier than that. The Stephen Jay Gould's book "Wonderful Life," uh, which changed, I think, a lot of scientists' uh, life, including mine. Um, he contemplates on this uh, notion of the tape of life, of course. I hope people still know what tape is, but I think your listeners will know what tape is. I don't know. It's the... Um, tape? tape? Go
0: on, tell me about the, <laughs> the tape. tape. Is it like a TikTok? Do, can you swipe on it? <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. I apologize or for my he, rude he, interruption.
1: <laughs> I can't ask for it. But <laughs> he he speculated or suggested this hypothetical experiment, whether if life was recorded on, or can be imagined to be recorded on a linear... Uh, is a linear chain of events recorded on a tape. And if we were to rewind this tape, would we listen to the same song, right? So this was, and in his proposition, I also thought, um, yeah, but are we replaying the tape in the same exact manner? Or are we, meaning all the geological and environmental events, are they happening at the same time? Because then you removed the randomness from equation a little bit, right? You just removed it because you're assuming everything will happen at the same time, at the same intensity. So that's not too contingent. Um, That means that the natural selection you're thinking is really operating it more or or evolution uh, is operating it more under more random forces uh, than that can be dictated by the environment. So in our way of understanding or thinking about rewinding, replaying, I don't think we're thinking about the role of the environment as clearly or don't seem to be integrated as much.
0: But I'll, I also wonder if it's possible that the chemistry ultimately defines the destination, that um, despite all the environmental changes, despite all the randomness, we'll end end up in something. But we are
1: not talking about whether life will emerge and sustain itself. We are talking about whether life will emerge and sustain itself in the shape and form that is similar to what we have right now. So... You are chemistry. I'm chemistry. We're having this conversation, and your plants are chemistry too. They are also having their own conversation.
0: These plants them. are fake, but yes,
1: I knew. That. I didn't want to say that. But they are fake.
0: But do you um, look at my place? Of course, they would be fake. Otherwise, they would die. What's All wrong lives? with this
1: place? It's—it's uh,
0: it's wonderful. It's—it's. It's, I'm. We're, I'm Alice, and this is Wonderland. This. This is great. I, this is great. It's just that you know. There's. This is a place where robots flourish, and this is th- that. Those plants are fake.
1: Are you saying that you and I are the only living organisms? Well, obviously there are microbes in this room, but... Um, yeah.
0: yeah, we so, are yes. the only living organisms. A second no. of getting a dog. Well,
1: you, you, you don't, this is not a clean room. So you, you have microbes here. Yes,
0: many, millions.
1: Yes. So so you and I and all the microbes in this room, your chemical systems that are operating in a way that we can respond and sense and our environments and whatnot. Yeah. But in, if you are asking if we are going to be here, then you're imagining that another solution is also possible, which is different... Than the fundamentals of life, because life will do always. Life will do its life thing. Mm-hmm.
0: I guess it goes all the way back to the things we we're talking about translation and the stuff you were messing with is figuring out what is the important stuff and what isn't. It makes me wonder about you know, just like with the trans uh, the translation uh, machinery with human beings. I wonder what's the important stuff. Is it important to have two limbs? Is it important to have eyes? Like it was obvious that the sensory mechanism of eyes, like sight, were to develop. How many times, if we on Earth, would the sensory mechanism of sight develop? And what would it look like? Would it be one giant eye or would it be two? What's with the symmetry? Why are we so damn symmetrical?
1: In, in response to Steve Jay gold's proposition, yes. uh, most people who would, who argue that uh, life is convergent and it will in fact lead to a few p- determined outcomes or, the, or it's not that the outcome is determined per se, but uh, it's the pathways are restricted and the mutational trajectories that life can act upon uh, are already very limited so that the final outcomes are a few and eyes being one of them. So. Uh, the, con- the convergence at the eye level was suggested as an example, was presented as an example of why life may actually embark on the same solution over and over again, given that many species evolved it independently from one another.
0: Do you think there's any inkling of truth to that? Like, uh, is it just us humans thinking we're special?
1: I think the those innovations came again so far after the... Uh, the <laughs> I know the it's, it's the, the fun stuff. Yes, yeah. uh, because it's- it's.
0: Thank you, I mean, th- th- thank you. We, think we humans tend to talk about the later stuff, but without the earlier yeah. stuff. Yeah, so when we I t- I
1: think stuff. of earlier, there's, and I, I ask this to my students too, I want them to close their eyes and think about just nothingness but dust. Like we're, we're, we don't have trees, we don't have plants. When we say an empty place, or visually at least, too, we are talking about a planet that is really alien. So understanding our own past is similar to understanding an alien planet altogether. Given that it is a very different planet that did not have any oxygen for 2 billion years, We there's nothing that is familiar to us that we would even think about when we think about life that is present in our past. Yet here we are.
0: So cool. that From that came this, like houses and people. And, and, and we are
1: very, very... We are the super late arrivals to the party, right? So th- this is definitely not our planets. It's the microbial planets that we live in.
0: But the potential to create us was always there. Like How this- do you know that? Because we were created. Oh, I don't know. I what is, it? is You think it's possible that even for the early stuff? Yeah, maybe if it's super unlikely. Yeah that we just got super, oh, this is the planet that got really lucky given the chemistry. Like maybe f- to create the bacteria is not so lucky, but to create complex organisms all the way up to mammals, that's super lucky. Yes, maybe. and it may
1: all come down to a few innovations that happened at the molecular level um, that may or may not be inevitable. Uh, that's, that the, the, So all, all these molecular tricks may have enabled the... The sort of mere existence of whatever you are able to define as familiar to yourself.
0: And you have a hope that science can answer this, these questions to reconstruct?
1: Science is answering these questions. I mean, it's, uh, we are limited to going uh, back to the beginning in our ways, right? So we rely on biology. It's just overwritten. You're talking about four, four billion year old records that is ever changing. Again, makes it beautiful, but also makes it difficult. It's not tractable. Geology has um, to some degree to some degree it has a record uh, of a more static frozen state record that is embedded on itself on the surface of this planet if we can find them and that's the key that most of these um recorded um remnants are if we are lucky we find them. They're not naturally selected. Uh, They're the, they are found. They need to be found for us to read them. So we work with a very handful set of samples, especially when we talk about the deep past, the planet with no oxygen, when we pass the great oxidation event threshold that is about 2.5 billion years. So the earliest life is even harder. You are trying to write the story of life based on a handful of rocks and what is recorded on them.
0: Speaking of finding select remnants of our deep past, you said that you've been thinking about Nick Nealon's essay on scientific knowledge and scientific abstraction. So let me ask you, where do you think scientific questions and answers or in general ideas come from? You're a scientist. You ask very good questions and try systematically and rigorously to answer them through experiment. Where where do you think ideas come from?
1: So ideas come all the time, right? There there are all kinds of ideas. There are good ideas, there are not so good ideas. Um, There are really exciting ideas, uh, maybe some boring ones. But um, if, if you are really interested in doing something different, then you need to be willing to take the risk to be wrong. Uh, and that's incredibly difficult. It's, even though we talked about the idealist uh, sort of notion behind science that we ultimately want to be rejected, or our ideas need to be rejected for it to for the entire infrastructure to move forward, there there is a level of risk taking I think behind um, any creative idea, and and I mean that in a true sense. If you are disappointed that your idea didn't work, then it wasn't a risk, because you still hoped that it will work. Mm-hmm. True risk is that you accept that it may not work, so that the failure shouldn't also surprise you.
0: Yeah. Is it when you embark on stuff, Do you when you embark on an idea, do you actually contemplate and accept uh, failure? Like as a as not a not consciously, a possible...
1: I wouldn't say so. But I eliminated a lot of the things uh, out of my work line by simply not feeling like studying them. I was bored uh, chasing certain questions, and I.
0: So you trusted the signal of boredom as a as a good sign that it's not a good question. Yes, it question should. De-
1: the, it should definitely. Be whatever you're doing should be exciting to. If if you're the only, if there's only one person that should be ever excited about what you're doing, that should be you. Yeah, and that's enough for for that idea to go somewhere. I think that you need to believe in the idea, but at the same time, I think it's important to not fall in love with your mistakes. You know that you if if something isn't working, you should let it go Mm -hmm. instead of trying to fix it even though you feel that this is a mistake or you know that it's a mistake, in order to, uh, um, sorry, instead of trying to fix it, uh, you should wrap it up and move on to something Mm. else, which is incredibly hard.
0: Good advice for science, but also good advice for relationships. (laughs) Um, But, okay so like but that's actually really hard especially I mean this is like phd stuff like if you sink in so much of your time not even phd the entire entire scientific careers it's really tough to let go
1: yes and there is not a lot of room for true freedom um maybe at, at this certain degree so first you need to be trained right it's, it's not that scientists are just brilliant amazing humans I mean they're just Know and learn how they, they, they know how to do science because they're trained in how to do science. So that that is important because I, I the, as someone who uh, w- wants to definitely, I'm hoping that I'm giving the message that this is for everybody, uh, that there's this notion of science, scientists being super smart people. That's definitely not true, right? It is a method that you learn to solve a problem. That's really what science is. And some are really good at it, uh, and they they get better at it under really good guidance, maybe good mentorship. Uh, and ultimately, everyone finds their own style of problem-solving and what sort of problems they solve. But I have not met a scientist that finds their own pursuit boring.
0: Well, it can happen, but they're not going to be effective, just like you said, I think... It's kind of interesting because um, in in the age of social media and, and, and attention economies and stuff like that, you know, I've interacted with a lot of folks like uh, YouTubers and so on. I, th- I think a lot of their work is driven by what others find exciting, and I think that ultimately leads to a life that's not fulfilling.
1: I can see the reason behind it, or perhaps there's a again failure, a fear of failure that can be a major determinant of that pattern, right? So you try to do something that is accepted by others because that's maybe unlikely to um, give results right away. But it's a long game. It's a very long game. And if you are aiming a long-term change and long-term impact, you've got to be very, very patient about it. And you better um, tame your ego,
0: uh, I mean, on on YouTube and those kinds of places on the internet, on social media, you get feedback like right away,
1: and yeah. so it's yes. even harder
0: to be patient. Yes. So, uh, in, in because yeah, but change and ideas develop over a period of months and years, if not decades, and the response from social media and so on is on the rate of seconds, yes. minutes, and hours. So
1: I recommend actual physical libraries for people who may wanna appreciate or remember the sense of time and yeah. and how long it takes to build something. I think it is, um, you're right, that's the immediacy and the right response of, and, and, and the fact that the, these places are, the algorithm wants you to respond right away and, and interact with itself, right? So um, I can see the appeal, but true innovation, I think it doesn't even, Scream! It doesn't. It's not shiny, especially in the beginning. Uh, but it's also important to not fool ourselves and think that everything that people criticize has some super important meaning behind it. So it's a mix of the technique, the methods, and your gut feeling.
0: Yeah, and a weird dance between learning and accepting the the ideas of the current science, and at times trusting your gut and rejecting those because science progresses by sometimes rejecting the ideas of the past or sometimes building on them in a way that changes them transforms them
1: yes and and i think what is hard is to really drill down into into a concept right so you can create a, a new thing and then it may be appealing and get a lot of gain a lot of traction but the to sustain that, to continue that, you really need to show the true expertise. And so it's not only about defining a problem, but then really systematically solve that problem maybe over the course of decades.
0: You mentioned the library. I've also saw that you've translated scientific documents, or at least like mentioned that you did it at, at some point in your life. Um, so let me ask you, how much do you think is lost in translation? in science and in life. How many languages do you speak? Two. Two. How, how much is lost in translation, in, in science and in life between those two?
1: But it's actually three because science is like another language,
0: right? It is. I speak Russian, a little bit of French, and it's always fascinating to see how much is lost. And the Soviet Union has a tradition of science and mathematics and so on. And it's interesting that a lot of the wisdom gained from that part of the world is lost basically because of it was never translated
1: well um i'm not sure if it is lost per se i, mean, I maybe it's more like a gain in some sense right because you understand and science is ultimately a human pursuit so you cannot separate uh, as much as maybe it's the best system that humans ever came up with to seek knowledge, to generate and make sense of the world. It works most of the time. It doesn't mean it's perfect.
0: Did the kind of translation you do, by the way, was for scientific work?
1: I d- directly translated for scientific work, yes. I think that, um, again, we, we, brains are equally distributed, but not opportunities are not, right? So if you um, want to include... If you want to benefit from all human power, whatever we can generate as human beings, you need to include everybody on the table. And that is by extending the opportunity. Is I think most of us that make it tend to think that we did because of something special about ourselves. and But it is important to know that, no, we were given opportunities. And that's why we are here. Not because uh, there was something inherently special about us or... Um, or that the system truly selects for the ones that really are.
0: Uh, yeah, and language is incredible. a part of the opportunity.
1: Yeah, language is an opportunity because speak... comes with, with similar to bacteria, right? They they speak these languages. They, yes. they, they have, we, even we call this, we call culturing the bacteria. We call it culturing, right? When we grow bacteria that we isolate from the environment in the lab, meaning that you create an environment for them to grow and thrive and sustain themselves. That's what we say, but culture is, for microbiologists, for language, with language comes a different culture, a different perspective. um, And and you bring that to the table. I mean, it brings the sense of diversity that can only be achieved by clashing perhaps two different cultures, two different languages, two different approaches, maybe in some cases four different approaches.
0: Yeah, I, I think language is not just uh, a mechanism of communication, it's a way to, uh, it's a dynamic system of exploring ideas. And it's interesting to see that different languages explore ideas differently.
1: Yes, and I think that, so when I said science is like a language itself, mm-hmm. uh, I said it in two different ways. One is very, uh, in a very literal meaning the, that you can speak English, but you, that doesn't mean you will understand the scientific paper. That uh, it's a different level of English that you need to learn to understand. Even not just for scientific papers, even from discipline to discipline, I, I challenge any chemist to read an evolutionary biology paper, and vice versa. It may s- sound extremely different, a different language altogether. Yeah. But there's also the, the language of communicating, and because words matter, how we talk matter. How we represent our science matters. So yes, just learning English as a second language alone it's not going to make you fluent in science either.
0: And it's interesting because in that sense, you speak many more than three languages because uh, you're pretty cross-disciplinary. It seems like you're you're you have a foot in in a lot of disciplines. I mean yes. you mentioned geology, biology, evol- evolutionary biology, I mean, there's uh, chemistry.
1: Biochemistry, biophysics, and even we do a lot of statistics. So there's a lot of mathematics to what we do as well. Yes, we like to think of it as as, uh, this, NASA astrobiology program says, I repeat it because it's fun, that it is not a um, fruit salad, but it's a smoothie. That that's what we are generating. (laughs)
0: Uh, It's not a fruit salad, it's a So a smoothie is a successful, is a successful combination of those fields and a fruit salad is not.
1: I wouldn't say it's success in necessarily it's some if you put it if you put the wrong ingredient and you press the blender and you made it a smoothie, you mean it, it can ruin the entire Can mix. it
0: can it though? Because I feel like every
1: Yes, I can definitely assess that for ginger for instance that ruins every smoothie. I don't like Ginger? It. I think so. But it's just a personal thing. And also I don't like cinnamon. But um
0: Oh, the uh, ginger has a cinnamon taste. Because I thought ginger was. No,
1: I don't think they do. But I, I also don't like. Wasn't that so a thing they
0: add in a lot of smoothies? I was forced a smoothie. I, I went to Malibu with a good friend of mine, Dan Reynolds, and he forced me to consume a smoothie. And you know, it's probably the first smoothie I've ever had because I always had was very judgmental of the kind of places and people that drink smoothies. But it was, it was good. It was good. Well,
1: a smoothie is very American, so I.
0: Yeah, it is an American thing. I goodness.
1: wouldn't say success per se, but it is true that when you dance at the edge of different disciplines, that, that's when the inevitably the innovation will rise because you will see things um, maybe a little differently when you're on the edge, right? So, but it will probably take longer and it may not be understood right away. It may not come into final form quickly given that it is a new uh, concept rising. So, Therefore, the patients will make more sense. Uh, I'm sorry, patients will be even more important. So if you are, um, in other words, if you are into immediate appreciation, um, that's probably not the way to go.
0: You're one chemical organism. Uh, so let me ask maybe a little bit more of a personal thing. Where did your life form originate? Um, and what fond memory do you have from the early days of childhood um, that are representative of your bacteria culture?
1: I uh, was born in Istanbul. So I grew up in Turkey. Um, it's a city that has two continents, which is quite interesting. You, have a, uh, you see a welcome to Europe sign and then a welcome to Asia sign the same day, depending on which part of the bridge you are. Um, so that that's where I was born. And uh, I spent about roughly 20 years of my life and then I immigrated to United States.
0: And it's a very proud culture. It's a beautiful culture. It's a very flavorful culture. Uh, what aspects of it is part of who you are? That, what, what are the beautiful aspects that you carry with you in your heart?
1: Uh, I think uh, we are very sincerely human. As a culture, I think we have the saying that don't go to bed full if your neighbor is hungry. So, you know, you wouldn't eat any food in front of someone where I come from without offering to share the bite. So I think those things, however small they may sound, um, a really big deal, especially when you are put in or move to a place that may not have those attributes. So I think that uh, culturally there, uh, we had a lot of conscious like, and uh, just raw, deep human. Um, the connection, connection. value
0: the connection between human beings.
1: I think so, yeah. I think I definitely carried that with me.
0: We talk a lot about biology. Let me ask you about the romantic question. What role does love play in the human condition or in the entirety of life on earth?
1: It's not easy to learn how to or how to love if you're not loved, okay? So, so it's something. But the good news is that <laughs> it is something that um, you can learn. I think that you, you can practice uh, and and teach yourself how to maybe give yourself the thing that wasn't given to you, and then ultimately give it to others. I think it would be quite arrogant to think that we will be capable of loving it could be anything, really. Um,
0: so just like translation, it's a repeating and a dynamical process
1: that you can learn,
0: yeah, that you can learn,
1: yes, and you should learn. Yeah. we should even there is no excuse to not learning
0: to love, yeah, because that's a deeply human thing.
1: it is a deeply human thing. it's it is a very sad thing if if any one of us passes this planet without the Knowing what love is. And that could be a love to a pet, a love to a plant,
0: to a robot. To a... <laughs> Just kidding. Um, <laughs> or a fake plant. We love, we can't help who we love. Uh, what advice would you give to a young person today, high school, college, <sighs> mm. um, how to have a career they can be proud of, or how to have a life they can be proud of? You said an interesting thing about brains being distributed evenly, but opportunity is not. It's, um, it's really interesting to think about. I've, I've talked to folks from Africa. You realize that there's whole areas of this earth that have so much brilliance, uh, but unfortunately, so little opportunity. And one, one of the exciting things about the 21st century is more and more opportunities are created, and so the brilliance is unlocked in all those different places. And so all these young people now have the opportunity to like do something to change the world.
1: I um, had a chance to visit um, Bosnia, so I um, was invited to give a talk in a very uh, up north, like very northernmost part of the country um, that was impacted by the war tremendously, and uh, it was a public talk was open to everybody in the village and i was told even people drew from sarajevo to attend whenever i th- think about our role as a scientist or the beneficiaries of the knowledge that we create i always think about that night that's uh, how many people were in that room it was incredibly crowded and the lot of lots of young people uh, who were trying to start everything new and not do, or, or not carry, um, uh, sort carry, replace whatever maybe the, the feeling that was taken from them with hope and love,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, start a new beginning, be the seed for the next generation. And it moved me so much that they all came to hear about early life space Something maybe different for them that maybe they were always interested in and never thought about. But what what stayed with me was the just the look and the feeling, the look on their faces and the feeling in the room, the energy just was very moving to me. Their
0: be. willingness to be the seed, the the first of their family and generation to do that big new thing.
1: Yes. And I Take will the leap. And that's exactly why I'm telling this whole story, because um some for most of us we may have to be that seed in our families that the first one to do something new um to do to break that cycle whatever it is that you want to break free from uh, I want I would want the young people to know that you can be that that's that, that there are um uh, just wonderful things to learn from this life and it's just incredible to be living and I would Want them to know that their voice matters and they need to use it, especially uh, those who think that their voice doesn't matter. Um, And ultimately, I think um, what it comes down to is to trusting yourself, trusting and respecting your voice. If you're not loved, learn how to love. If you are not respected, start by respecting yourself. Learn how to respect yourself. You can teach yourself things.
0: Yeah, it's uh, really difficult when uh, you're surrounded by people that don't believe in you. Yes, so I think I
1: thing... definitely n- know the feeling and I would uh, just want them to know that it, they don't need to be defined by, or reduced down to what others see in them.
0: Believe in yourself, have the respect, for so try to develop the respect and the love for yourself. And then from that, it flourishes you find others that'll give you love
1: it may not i mean life is not <laughs> fair it's true yeah, yeah. it's be be yeah. prepared that it's it's a it's a it's not very fair unfortunately and uh, so i don't want to depict this disney story that and then yes and everything will be just fine yeah. it mostly isn't but you learn away learn you know life does it all the time
0: speaking of which what do you think is the meaning of all this What's the meaning of life? Why are we here?
1: Why are we here?
0: All the beauty you've discussed. Why is the translational mechanism machinery here? Why? I don't think so. Why so much beauty?
1: Why so much beauty? Uh, It is because we choose to see it that way. It's beautiful, but there is no meaning. I don't think no, yeah
0: but why is it so beautiful why did we choose why from where is the imperative to see it uh, to see so much beauty in a thing that scientifically speaking or from a rational perspective is void of beauty it's just it just is not why
1: everybody does... chooses to see the beauty gonna
0: hate is going to hate I mean, we have the capacity to see the We
1: beauty. have the capacity, so why why not use it to the fullest, right? We we have the capacity.
0: But that that capacity isn't that fascinating, that we developed that. It feels like that was always laid in there into in the whole process of life. This ability to to find to to introspect ourselves.
1: I mean, I, it's definitely soothing to think like that, but I don't think. There is a meaning like that way. I, that that's it's fascinating that we can understand it. Um,
0: but it, why is it soothing? There's a desire. There's a longing.
1: But soothing that. doesn't mean th- that there's a meaning. Why why is soothing a meaning? Let me just put it this way: because there is just I think so much unfairness going on. Um, I wouldn't even dare myself to think that there's a meaning. To out of my out of respect to the ones that are suffering.
0: I see, I think, I think out of suffering emerges flourishing and beauty. I mean, that's what I see. I I agree with you. When I went, I went to Ukraine. It's all the people suffering, in their eyes and in their stories, is a hope for the future, is a love. Um, is a love for the people who are still living is a love for life so it's there and that's the dark thing is the suffering and the loss somehow intensifies your appreciation of the life that is still left that's a weird thing I too I think
1: that there is some something about uh, still doing your best and believing that there's there, whatever it, the goodness is worth working for um is beyond and and to do that without a meaning it, there's something more humili uh, humbling and and profound about that and and I, I we have a um this will come out very random okay so just <laughs> um in turkish bathrooms uh-huh there is this uh, sign that says um, leave it as you want to find it. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty good
0: That's your that's your meaning of life found in the turkey. I, there's <laughs> wisdom to that.
1: There's wisdom to that but it also it's because the however you leave defines you. Right? So, I think there's some profound meaning to that too, that just just Leave it as you would want to find it.
0: <laughs> so that uh, your little scribble in the long story of life on Earth is one that ultimately did a pretty good job. You know, in, it, it at least kept it the same as you I found
1: did. it. <laughs> or or at Love least it. i left it in the way that i i wish i found it yeah
0: yeah right <laughs> oh man
1: yes that's that's the wisdom from turkish bathrooms that's
0: where i search for wisdom as well and it's as as we 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 started with the origin of life and ended with the wisdom of a turkish bathroom i think that's a perfect conversation you're an incredible person uh, the humor the humanity but also the brilliance of your work um, I really appreciate that you would talk with me today. This was really fun.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to this conversation with Batool Kachar. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now let me leave you with one of my favorite quotes from Robert Frost. In three words I can sum up everything I've ever learned about life, it goes on. Thank you for listening. I hope to see you next time.